Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and I am joined one more time for this season of This Is Our Design by Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Kate, we have reached the end. I feel like we need like pomp and circumstance playing in the background or something. It's very, it's a, it's a big moment. It is. And for this big moment, what is the big drink that you're drinking? Well, uh, so it's our finale, right, of, of, of season one and, and our last podcast, at least until season three comes out, at least that I know of, unless there's something you need to tell me, Sean. Um, but so I planned to, to have one of my favorite drinks and then realized I was out of gin. And then I was like, I know I can have you some of that whiskey that's good whiskey that's been sitting around um, collecting dust and finally try whiskey and ginger ale, which all of our whiskey drinker guests that have come on have said is one of their favorites and I should try it and it'll be delicious. And then realized that I sent the whiskey off with my dad who actually likes whiskey. Uh, so I have here... <laughs> Cognac and ginger ale. What? I'm not very optimistic. I'm not optimistic about that either. <laughs> but that's. I also have a backup here of some champagne. Well, okay. yeah, I've done that so. as a beverage on the podcast before, which is why I didn't just straight up go with that. Um, but it feels like a nice celebratory, you know, thing. So when I mean, sorry, if this cognac and ginger ale thing completely fails. Like, I assume it will. It's like the right, same color as whiskey, right? That must mean something. Um, I can uh, I can switch. No! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm... Please, like, narrate this as it's happening. So. I also have the end of a, of a latte as well, so it's going to be a very, like, upper-downer kind of podcast for me. Well, isn't that Hannibal, though? Yeah, that works. I pulled out my my best scotch. Well, not my best scotch. My favorite scotch. Uh, I think that I've had this on the show before, but um, you know, Hannibal's kind of like my favorite TV series, so it's it's appropriate. So this is my my Talisker, uh, eighteen year, which is a, a fantastic scotch. But uh, yeah, I just lost my train of thought. This week we'll be talking about, of course, season one, episode thirteen, the season finale, uh, titled. Here we go, uh, Savaru. Is that, is that good? Yeah, Savara. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Written by uh, Steve Lightfoot, Brian Fuller, and you know what? I always, I'm pretty sure I always mess this guy's name up. I've had to do it many times, and I kind of just mumble his last name and hope that nobody looks it up and, and cares that I got it wrong. Scott Namerfro. Any idea there? I don't know. That sounds about right to me. Fine. <laughs> Let us there. know. Right. Anybody who knows, you know. Scott, if you're listening out yeah. there, drop uh, us an email. Yeah. Correct our pronunciation and come on the podcast. And, uh, of course, directed by David Slade once again. And joining us also once again from TV.com, Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, don't you have anything better to do than to talk with us? I, I was just actually in a Google Hangout for a online book club. We were talking about the never-ending story. So, yes, I did actually have... <laughs> Don't ask things like that. He might leave. <laughs> uh, and, of course, because we have uh, Noel back for this one, this is going to be very much... Two and a half uh, hours, man. Two yeah, and a half hours. Say, it's going to be unedited, and if it ends up being two and a half hours, it's two and a half hours. So it's the finale. It calls for it. Uh, I'm not in any rush here. So this should be a whole lot of fun. Before we get into it, I have to say, ask Noel, do you have 
as potentially delicious a beverage as I do. <laughs> it's funny that you say this because here's the thing. I'm actually drinking St. George, which is a distillery in uh, San Francisco, and they do a gin. They do actually three types of gin, and I'm drinking their dry rye gin, which is they bill as their gin for whiskey drinkers. Hmm. And I've actually, here's the other funny part, is that I routinely mix my gin with ginger ale, and that is my cocktail of choice, is this dry rye gin, gin with ginger ale, and it's really delicious. Well, I gotta say, I've had a couple sips of my uh, <laughs> Hennessy and, uh, and ginger ale, and surprisingly, it works. It's okay. I didn't know cognac could be used as a, with, as a mixer like that, so... I, well, I wasn't going to drink it by itself, that's for sure. I think I think I made a fruitcake at one point, and that's why I have cognac. Because uh, it's just, it's not it's not the, my type of, of beverage. I go more for the gin and tequila, as people will have noticed over the course of the season. But there's like a nice, I don't know, the ginger ale works really well to kind of cut the thing, the cognac-iness of the cognac. <laughs> and so, it, but the cognac cuts the sweetness of the ginger ale, so it just kind of comes in in the middle and it has a really clean finish yeah S since you asked john i'm sorry i had to throw up because you mentioned tequila <laughs> i hate tequila too sean it's disgusting i was willing right. to try whiskey if you know drink whiskey for this one if i had it out of deference to our many whiskey drinking guests i think you well, need to try some good tequila at some point yeah i've i do you know i've had the the shitty tequila and that's obviously not a good sampling i've had um Probably two or three, though, that are meant to be good. And to be fair, they they were noticeably better and easier than, you know, stuff like Cuervo or something. But uh, we'll we'll see if I return to that for another episode of, of This Is Our Design, um, which incidentally will be returning for a season three. And actually, it's going to be hosted by Moss Mickelson and Hugh Dancy describing the events of uh, the lives of Kate and myself. I'm really looking forward to, to listening to that, i got to say. I think it'll be fascinating to get an outsider's perspective. Yeah, and uh, Noel will appear in this narrative, and he will both be disemboweled and shot in the face. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that, let us get into this finale. Noel. So, of the three characters who are closest to Will who are not aware of the truth about Hannibal. So Jack, Alana, and Beverly. Jack is the one who is, I guess I would say, least resistant in buying into the evidence that incriminates Will. Can you break down his reaction to the events of this episode? Well, <clears throat> I think part of it is that he's dealing with a lot of Guilt, because as he as he acknowledges in that really terrific scene with Lana, is that he saw Will breaking down and he kept pushing him anyway. And I think that Jack is just at a point where he needs to fix the situation that he in he facilitated, for want of a better word, and he sees the evidence that's around that can point that points right at will. And the only thing that I think is holding Jack back is the fact that he's not entirely convinced about the order of events until will tells him that he's being set up. And then it's just like, well, this guy did it. And 
that's where Jack, I think, finds himself a little bit by the end is that he sees Will not as a victim, but as someone who committed these crimes and is a high functioning so sociopath. He's right that there's a high functioning, sorry, a high functioning psychopath amidst them. He's just wrong about who it is. And that's, that's the whole, that's the terrible dramatic irony of all this is that Jack's right. He's just wrong at the same time. Yeah, and in that, epi uh, in that episode, in that scene, uh, it does seem like the turning point, Jack brings up the paranoia, asks Will if he realizes how he's sounding in the moment, and unfortunately for Will, it doesn't look good to the audience when he comes back and says, well, you know, it's somebody, it could be somebody here, it could even be you, Jack. Right. Like, that's, that's certainly him being defensive, and I guess we can understand it from that perspective. But uh, not the best strategy. So, so taking this into consideration um, and, and sticking with Jack for a little bit longer, you know, Kate, why do you think he says, I wanted to be the one to do this and then say that, that Will Graham is under arrest? Like, what is the, the purpose, the motive, uh, the reasoning behind that? Uh, for Jack, I mean, I just I think it's just uh, an acknowledgement of their friendship. He doesn't want somebody else doing you know, the, the this this traumatic thing. He's like, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be brought in. I think it's fair to say that Jack and the people who have been working with Will are the ones who are going to be the most likely to bring him in in as kind a way as possible. So there's that. But also I think it's really, you know, I, and I think that's where Jack is coming from. But it also, he, Jack needs to be the one to bring him in because Jack's the one who put him out there in the first place. And so if somebody else brings Jack in, or brings Will in, Jack's going to look much, much worse when it comes time for the review that will have to happen uh, based on the fact that somebody working for the FBI is apparently a serial killer who has been under their nose this whole time. So uh, to, to have any chance of saving his job, Jack needs to be the one to bring him in. Um, but but more than that, I really do think it it has more to do with uh, their relationship and and Jack trying to be uh, trying to make this as as less painful. I would say painless, but it can't be painless as less painful as it can be. Mm -hmm. And so um, this very much has to do with Jack taking on the burden then of having put Will into this situation, and it's going to be him who has the final say and, and puts Will into cuffs. Is there any element, if we do consider that a turning point, where, where Jack really thinks, okay, man, maybe Will really did this, and, and that's something that I believe. Is there any element in that line of dialogue about him being the one wanting to do this that has to do uh, with this being a killer that they've, they've been chasing the, the whole season, and so it being somewhat of a, of a victory for Jack, or is that entirely absent? I, I, for me, it's it's absent, but um, I'm curious what you think, Noel. Um, <clears throat> well, I think it's a hollow victory, if it's a victory at all, um, mainly because of who it is. Like, they don't want it to be Will, but I mean, all the evidence is perfectly situated for it to be Will. Um, it's too perfectly situated, which is why Will realizes he's being set up, but it's perfectly situated from an outside perspective, which is weird to think about Jack as an outside perspective. But given everything that Will has been through with Hannibal this season, it's very much an outside perspective from the 
dance that Hannibal and Will had been doing all season, whether or not Will even knew he was dancing at the time. Yeah, and that that makes sense to me. I, I was wondering about it as I watched, and certainly I think my natural um, inclination there is that Jack feels the pain of this whole situation and everything that Will's been put through and the fact that he's been um, just reduced to this and that this could actually be a possibility and seems like the most likely possibility given the evidence that uh, it would make sense for Jack to, to be the responsible leader there. But uh, it's it's a really interesting line of dialogue, I think, and very powerful, uh, delivered by, by Lawrence Fishburne. But uh, a couple other reactions that we get from characters in the episode, of course. And, and Kate, I know that one of the most memorable scenes, maybe not even of this season, but perhaps the whole series for you, um, is in the aftermath of Alana's conversation with Jack when she's so upset about how things have gone down. Uh, what is it in that scene that we get with her in the car that works so well for you? I think it's a handful of things, and I was very, uh, was very disappointed to to watch the watch it this time and have it not work as well for me this time. I, I, it still works very well; it's an excellent little moment. But I think uh, this this time the scene before it was much more powerful to me. That scene with Alana and with Jack. Um, but I still do like that scene in the car, that moment in the car. And the the difference, I think, between watching it this time and watching it the first time when it was like a gut punch for me was that the first time I watched this, this season, when it was airing live, I had not been paying as much attention to Alana because I was so fascinated with everything that was happening with Will and Hannibal that I wasn't noticing her as much. And so when, you know, and in the second half, this back half of the season, not even half, but the last, I don't know, few episodes, she's been much less present. She's, I think she's just not really even in episode 10 and she's only in a few scenes in these other episodes. And so to have what felt like one of her very few moments in this last chunk of the season, just be this wordless reaction that I think we get so much there the the power the 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 intensity of her reaction and i think it's beautifully played by carolyn um davernis she says davernis i've learned by caroline uh, davernis is you know it, it it's very apro uh, apropos for the character but also it's for the audience i think that's there um to give the character the outlet she needs but also to 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 let the audience you know get some of that emotion out could you i mean could you imagine if this was something that you were experiencing, if it was um, a trusted friend or trusted ally, somebody you were worried about and your very worst fears for them came true. Um, I think it's really moving. And the, the lack of dialogue, the, uh, the, the scoring is not exactly subtle. And I think paying more attention to the scoring this time did make that moment feel more standard and less unique. But um but I mean, I think it's just the fact that they really just sit with her and show her process, you know, like starting out just sort of despondent and, and on it, um, not really reacting as much sort of withdrawn and then crying and like hitting the steering wheel and then pulling herself back together. Just, it gives you the, the whole coping process all, all in one little cut together scene moment. Yeah, I don't think I could agree with you more. Uh, going through the first time and having watched 
season two, looking back on season one, this was the big moment for me in remembering Alana, maybe perhaps uh, only matched by some of the the nicer, quieter moments between Alana and Abigail in which they're kind of just walking around talking. But uh, watching it again in, in this rewatch, um, I don't want to say it, it was less powerful, but it's... I'll, I'll say that. Okay, so <laughs> for me it was. <laughs> I'll say that it's it probably has the equal amount of power for me, just because it it, it does exactly what you said, which is um, explore how horrifying it is for a character to have to experience this. I think that that translates very well from the screen um, to the viewer. Um, but yeah, it, it's only one moment I think in an episode of very memorable moments and memorable reactions i think to to uh will having to go through this process and it looking like okay there's a lot of evidence stacked against him um noel if you want to add anything about alana's reaction um go for it but also uh, beverly i think is another key figure here so i want to talk about her sure um no just to like tick up on that it's kind of bizarre because i actually that scene, like, I've watched this episode, I think, twice, like, the week that it aired, because I watched it on a terrible screener version on NBC's press website, and it was awful. You couldn't see anything. And then I watched it when it aired, and um, it's just watching it again today before we recorded it, um, what struck me about it was not so much that it's less powerful, because I, I feel like it was still very much a gut punch, but contextually for me, it shifted a little bit in that I realized that this was an internal thing for her. Like the previous scene is her lashing out at Jack. And then this scene is about her lashing out at herself, being angry and frustrated with herself for allowing Will to get to this point. And I think that's where I feel like those two scenes in tandem actually work better for me than I think they did last two years, two scenes. Two, two years ago now. Um, so yeah, actually, I'm going to dissent and say that they work better because you get a fuller frame of her working through that process, not only within the car, but also within her confrontation with Jack. It also does such a great job of expressing her helplessness at, mm-hmm. the, at the situation, and I think that's really, really key. And we're going to see how she then tries to handle that. The I think pair and again the scene right after that with her right is like another stage of that. Yeah, and, and and ending on her smile as she or like really subtle because it's not a victory, but it's almost it's it's a a very tentative, untrusting, uh, wary relief. Yeah, is that smile, and so to have it sort of just be part of the continuum. I think I, I think what it might also be just is that I remembered it being so incredibly power the f- powerful the first time through that I was like it's like oh we're getting to the moment oh uh, guys it's gonna be awesome and I was like oh it's just really good oh I think it's, <laughs> I think it's because I appreciated the scene before so much more I was noticing more nuance in both her but especially in Lawrence Fishburne's performance in the, that scene before and then really enjoying her interactions. Um, in that scene with Will and 
We'll talk more about that scene with Will when we get to spoiled meat, because there's other stuff about that, that we can't talk about yet that I thought was interesting in there. That this just sort of felt, like you said, no, like very much part of the continuum rather than like the standout moment of performance for, from uh, um, Davernus uh, throughout the entire episode. Yeah, no, she gets those three scenes that are really her. And I mean, <clears throat> it's funny because Fuller on the commentary track for this episode says that that scene with Jack is when they felt like Alana snapped into focus. And my immediate thought is, it took you 13 episodes for Alana to snap into focus? That's great. But the other thing is, is just that it really positions her as Will's defender, and she's trying to find a way to defend him. It's why she lashes on to the idea of dementia as a symptom, and it's why, as you said in that, in her scene with Will that immediately follows her breakdown in the car, is that she finds a way to hopefully, maybe, at least keep him somewhat safe. And when we get scenes like that with other characters, there's always that question. And we talked about this with um, with Jack and Miriam last. How much of that is uh, is concern for the character and how much is guilt that, they, that, that they're feeling? So, yeah. like, how much of it is... Uh, with with Jack, how much of it is is sorrow over the fact that the character died, and how much of it is guilt that he's the one responsible that he feels responsible for it? Where does that you know, and, and how fuzzy is it line with Alana? I think it is, I think it is very clear. Um, whereas for other characters, it, in the same situation, it wouldn't be. I think it's very clear for her that it's it's she she is not she's glad if he's sick, then she's less culpable, but she's not thinking about that at all she is not concerned with oh thank goodness i'm not as much at fault if he's sick which i think jack might be worried about that more she's completely focused on he might be salvageable yes yes yeah and better for her to snap into focus after 13 episodes i guess than than never at all and i think the progression here works rather well and i don't want to use this in a diminutive way um, because I think it's really easy to be cliche and talk about grief, which was mentioned in this episode, uh, within the context of the, the, the five stages. But you can kind of see all of that happen from the first Alana scene when she is arguing with Jack into her her conversation with Will. Um, and it, it's very striking, I think. Also striking is how different it is from Jack's reaction and also uh, from Beverly's reaction, who is... Uh, getting the, the blood flakes from underneath Will's fingertips oh, and oh. yeah and it's just I, she can't take the silent treatment it's, it's great watching it now I think because I have a better sense of all three of the CSI guys um, and when we see all of them pull up to Will's house in the beginning you can kind of tell what's going through Zeller's head and that's nothing pleasant because he's never particularly liked Will, you can kind of get a sense of of Jimmy as well. It means more to Beverly, though. So um, I didn't really have a a specific question prepared for her, but if either of you wanted to talk about that and kind of this being the end of that sub-arc for the season as well. I love the the look that she gives him when she's walking in. Because, of course, neither Jimmy or Z uh, make eye contact. They just keep their head down, walk in. But she does look at him and meet meet his eyes. And it's... I, I, I love how... Um, it's not... She's not stone-faced, stone but 
um, she's clearly, she's worried. She's, uh, upset. She's nervous. You know, she's, she's all sorts of these, all these other things. Um, but she also think, you know, there's part of her that thinks this could be true. Um, and, and I think the actress does a great, she, to, to balance all of that, she just pulls it all in, keeps it an internal and keeps Beverly's face comparatively inscrutable. Um, and I think that just, you know, there's not like, there's nothing reassuring in her face, but there's nothing condemning in her face either. So I just, that's a little detail that I particularly liked. And it's also, um, how she asks or, or brings up the fact that he's will is so used to interpreting the evidence and asks him interpret the evidence. So she's very willing to go along with another option here. She's, she's not ready to jump on board the guilt train, regardless of what the evidence initially suggests. I think that they've developed a very good uh, relationship, even though it's, it's mostly been uh, professional respect, but you can just get a better sense. I think now on a second watch uh, rather than a first time through when you're trying to take in so many things that are happening on Hannibal at once, um, that, that that relationship really means something. And it also is very painful for Beverly to some extent, uh, not maybe not in the same ways that it is for, for Jack and Alana. Um, but it, it's almost like a, a lateral movement rather than one that's below the, the amounts of emotion that they feel. Uh, Noel, did you have any reaction to this? Well, I think the other thing that uh, to add to what you've both said is that it's also kind of a professional issue for her as well in that if Will is guilty, then he's arrogant enough to have tried to hoodwink all these people. And I think that's part of the reason why she asks him to like look at the evidence to kind of like get that sense of confirmation. But there's also this sense that because they're in the FBI, he puts them at risk with this kind of behavior if he's not actually a serial killer. And <clears throat> one of the things that she he she asks him is, well, why did you do, why did you stay if you were feeling this well? And he just looks at her and in the most pitiful sounding voice, he just says, I thought I would get better. And I mean, that's where the scene ends, sadly, is but it's one of those sequences where Will was kind of doing being at the FBI because it thought it would make him feel better. And I don't think Beverly quite sees the FBI in that kind of personal improvement sort of way, but more as a professional environment for her. And I think that's also where she's coming from with her frustration with this is that she respects Will as a profiler and that sort of thing. And but clearly he doesn't respect them enough to catch on to the fact that he would be this mass serial killer. Well, I, I, I do love that. It's like it's this this is the FBI. We're not yeah. getting around here. Yeah. <laughs> this is not you know group therapy make you feel better. This is the FBI. There's no optimism. Yeah. Um, let's move on now to some of the I guess structural things because I of course this somebody who reads and writes a lot, I'm very interested in narrative and how it works. And I think Hannibal as a series often does um, interesting different things when it comes to the structure of its narrative. Uh, but this finale, I think, has a very clear climax that is followed also by a very clear falling resolution. And the climax being 
uh, the scene that takes place at the Hobbs house in which Will almost shoots Hannibal and then Jack shoots Will. Uh, Noel, how effective is this as a more standard device in this finale? Parse out what you mean by more standard device for me, please. That, you know, we often get episodes of Hannibal that end um, not necessarily abruptly, but in a way that it's more contemplative and there maybe is lacking uh, a very clear and distinct first act, second act, third act that fit into the standard idea. Okay, of okay, okay. Yeah. So a more, a more classical structure. Yeah. Okay. Well, not classical in the standard Greek sense, but classical, normative. Okay, now repeat your question. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, so applying the more standard normative uh, narrative structure to this episode and having that as the climactic sequence, um, does that climax work for you or is it stuff around that climax that's, I guess, that's more memorable or more impacting? No, that climax is friggin' amazing. Um, it's, I think, probably one of the best things that this show has done. Um, if only because so much of this episode, and so much of the season builds up to this, but so much of the episode is building up to this, because throughout the entire episode, Hannibal is acting. He's in a role, which makes your idea of dramatic structure here actually kind of rel- kind of potent, even potent or more potent, is that he's acting because he's the one that has set all this up. He's the one who has like framed Will and all this sort of stuff, and he's responding to things as if he doesn't know what's going on. So he's just like, oh, no, Will's clocks are totally fine. Look at this clock. See, it's perfectly okay. And it's just like he's putting on a performance for everyone else. And I think what happens in the climax of it is that when Will turns to him and says, should we reenact the crime scene? And Will Hannibal knows he's caught at that point. And, but he's staying in character, and he's staying in character basically up until they get to the kitchen, and he's just going to start pushing Will a little bit. And I think that's just so good, and Will's reaction, because he's finally awake, his brain's not quite enough on fire, he's realized that Hannibal's been setting, setting him up, and just Will's realization of how he's been played is just gut-wrenching from Hugh Dancy, and it's... Perfect. And I think the other thing that I was struck with watching it back in December when I rewatched it before season two started and noticed again is just like I, the, with the makeup and the lighting, Mads Mickelson's face just looks very much like we've pulled his skin as tight tight as we could over his head. And he looks very much just like a skull with wax over it. And it's just really disturbing to me. And so, yeah, I think the more more usual structure for the episode and giving it the climax, because we need that climax to happen, just works really, really well. Even Will's monologue, which could, I think, feel a little theatrical, just works really perfectly. And Hannibal being theatrical is Hannibal being theatrical. So it's I'd rather have Hannibal be theatrical than most other shows. 
we'll we'll get to the the final scene in just a moment. But I think a lot of the reason that it works well for me is, too um, is because if you are at all familiar with the source material, um, and even if you're not, you know that Hannibal Lecter is eventually caught, and so this is the first season of Hannibal, the TV series, which is a prequel to Red Dragon, and you think, oh, okay, so this first season will lead up to the capture of Hannibal Lecter, and it's not the case, um, and it, it just all works, and it's believable, because Will does um, motion to shoot Hannibal, and if Jack had not shown up, that would have happened, um, so it, it also works because of how believable it is, I suppose. Uh, Kay, did you want to chime in on the climax before we move to the ending of the episode? I'm sure, yeah. To go with what you were saying, uh, Noel, along with the, like, the look of Hannibal's face being very skeletal, the hair, his hair being so... I mean, it's always, you know, back and everything, but it's particularly slicked back here. It just... You you almost don't even see it. I was, I was noting that as I was watching that last scene this time. Um, yeah, it's just... The... the Hugh Dancy is fantastic in that uh, confrontation scene, um, and, and and very powerful. But even more this time through, I was watching Mass Mickelson, um, and the the progression, as you guys were saying, of Hannibal from playing this role, and we'll get more into that in Spoiled Meat um, throughout the episode, but specifically in the scene to his happiness. At at Will's realization, his excitement that Will is putting everything together, you know, is is you know like his all of his hard work over the course of the season, uh, you know, Will is seeing him, something that he's wanted so so much. Um, that was really um, particularly exciting to watch this time. And uh, going back to Sean, your question earlier about the structure, I mean, this. It was very exciting to watch the first time when I, you know, when I was first watching this live, it was very exciting to watch this time through. It was even more so like the, uh, just watching the way that, that, that last scene parallels the pilot so, so strongly with, you know, who, who is which character in that, in that moment. And also just the the dramatic irony throughout the episode it's the slow progression of will piecing everything together is so incredibly uh satisfying it's very delicate it's very um it's not the house or psych they see one thing and then everything snaps together and all of a sudden they can solve the case it's it's just it's it's baby steps towards the realization that you know it's his subconscious pushing him there um and in making everything fit uh having the stag transition from a stag to the wendigo in this episode as he gets closer to, to, to piecing things together also ties in with this so just the structure of the episode uh in relation to the pilot and you know as the culmination of everything in this last half of the season it's it's fantastic. I would say this is a truly great episode of Hannibal, except that then I watched the season two finale is so much better, <laughs> which is, you know, quite, I would say quite a feat. I thought that the season one finale of Hannibal was amazing until I saw the season two finale of Hannibal and it redefined for me what the show was able to do. <laughs> We're kind of spoiled with the quality episodes of the show, I think. I'm glad that you mentioned the 
the transition of the stag, and I have a question about that um, as well for just a moment, or in just a moment. But I want to stick just a little bit longer on on structure, uh, following the the climax. Um, I, I guess just thinking about the very last sequence. So, and, and we'll talk about Bedelia as well, but specifically uh, Hannibal walking down the the corridor up down to uh, where Will is being held. How would you describe this ending, Kate? Because I think, for me, I I don't know if this is the best episode of the season for me. There are a couple other episodes that I really, really enjoy for various reasons, but this final sequence is possibly the best in the entire series for me as a viewer, at least watching it on my first uh, viewing, I, I guess. And that's not to spoil anything from season two, and, and for listeners who haven't watched it yet, uh, there's a hell of a lot of fantastic stuff. But just the surprise and how beautifully constructed and pulled off it was um, really, really landed with me 100% perfectly. I think I had a different experience watching this than you did, because when I was watching the show, I never thought that season one was going to end with Hannibal being caught or being, you know, captured and put into jail or, you know, whatever, um, because it's a TV show and that would, that wouldn't jump things along too fast. Um, so I didn't have that expectation that he would get, get arrested um, in the first season. So that, that affected, you know, how I, how I viewed some of this. However, um, it was hugely satisfying the first time I watched it. It is just as effective now, I think. Have it, I'll, and I'll talk a lot more about that last sequence when we get to Kate's Classical Corner, because uh, the scoring there is very deliberate and fabulous. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's it's one of those of course moments when you watch it. It's like, how did I, of course that's how the first season of this show had to end. How did I not see that this see this coming? How did I not, you know... Uh, expect that this is where they would go. And it's always when a show is able to pull that off and to make it feel organic um, and earned, it's always a very satisfing thing. I, I think as a viewer, uh, Noel, what do you think? Well, it's not only organic and earned, but it's one of those instances where it's narratively organic and earned, but it also provides you with a narratively justified reason to pay an homage to silence the lambs, which I mean, when you're adapting from the Thomas Harris novels and as well as incorporating bits of the media, other adaptations into your version, um, <clears throat> it's one of those instances where an homage can feel superfluous, but here it just feels so new and fresh while still calling back to watching Jodie Foster walk down to the last cell on the left and finding Hannibal Lecter there waiting for her. And instead it's swapped around and there's just this delicious amount of dramatic irony for the audience knowing how this scene is working and then appreciating it because of the fact that it has this appreciating it because you don't even need that extra layer of the homage for it to feel potent. It, it, it just is without that, but with that extra layer, it just, it's something's very special and the music as well as you'll get to is also just adds another layer to that as adds another layer to it as well. Yeah. And no, I'm very interested to, 
to hear that discussion of the music because, yeah, that's a, a big part of why it works so well. Hannibal, I think, is very good, extremely and uniquely good, I would say, at, at some things in comparison to other television series. Um, and when it's able to combine a couple of those elements at the same time in one sequence, it's it's just an unbeatable combination. And I think that that's, this is an instance of that happening um, and perhaps more powerfully than any other scene that I can remember from, from this first season. Um, but we'll come back to that, obviously, in Kate's Classical Corner. Uh, so we'll move on now. I had mentioned Bedelia uh, and, and Noel based on two scenes, the, the first of which shows Hannibal crying and putting on a show for her, and you had mentioned him being part of a performance, uh, and the second of which has Bedelia observe uh, the fact that Hannibal's pattern is going to start becoming recognizable. How do you view that relationship differently in this episode, if at all? It's tough because we don't know a lot about Bedelia at this point. We just know that she's retired from practice and the, the events around that are still kind of shrouded in mystery. I think we can infer that Hannibal from this has a history of dealing with difficult patients. I think that's what she means by they're going to see a pattern um, <clears throat> and putting himself, getting himself too involved. And I think that that's, and maybe she's involved in that somehow in some way, but it's just, I think it's really unclear, but I think she's starting to realize that there's more to Hannibal than potentially meets the eye. And I think we all need to pause and just also remember that they're eating a little girl at that point. Mmm, veal. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it's always unclear, uh, and effectively so, uh, about how much information she possesses. But just for me, the fact that he is putting on this performance means that there, there are things that she is not completely aware of. She might... Uh, intelligently infer some things, and I, I'm sure that she has many opinions of her own, but Hannibal has no companion that he can be complete, completely trusting of. You know, we, he told Abigail that, yes, he has killed many people, and now Abigail's not there. So um, anybody who does have that information seems to disappear. Um, but it's it's still just a wonderful and complicated relationship that works on the periphery. Yes, we get a couple scenes in the season in which Jack gets to interact with Bedelia, but it, it seems very much um, something separate from all the rest of the action that's that's going on. Did this change anything about your opinion uh, regarding the relationship, Kate? Um, I'm gonna I'm just gonna reserve my thoughts for spoiled meat. <laughs> I think that that is totally fair. Because <laughs> so, I have a bunch of them. <laughs> this, entire, this entire episode might as well have just been mostly spoiled meat. <laughs> but yeah, the, what I can say, um, when I first watched it, uh, and when I first watched it, first of all, I remembered what, one of the scenes very differently. Or not differently, I just I remembered it ending earlier. Um, I remember it just feeling a jolt of electricity through you know through jolt of energy through uh my system 
with her line, they're starting to see your pattern or they will, they will see your pattern or something like that. Um, I remember the scene ending there. Um, and just being like, holy shit, guys, Bedelia knows. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, which of course that is not how the scene actually plays out. There's a few more lines of dialogue. Um, but I think just when I first watched it, especially coming in the middle of a, of a veal dinner, uh, and, and this, this Jillian Anderson's performance is so, um, stoic, I guess, uh, is so measured that you never know quite how to read her. Um, and so when you have her eat the veal and then say that they'll start to see your pattern, I think I just, my mind started racing about everything that could mean. And then I just wasn't paying attention. So didn't remember that the scene continued. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and certainly, uh, that character has been, was just such a, well-utilized, I'll say, spice in this first season. She's She just pops up a few times, but very memorably each time. Um, I think pretty much everything with her in this first season is, is very effective. Um, and I'll save the rest of my thoughts about the Bedelia and Hannibal conversation for, for spoiled meat. Perfect. Um, slightly tangential. I've never had veal. Is it good i've never had veal so i don't know I, apparently you're supposed to tip your waitresses and try it though it's always veal in that line uh, no no i've uh, never had uh, veal i tend to skew most meat i'm i really very rarely eat anything that's not chicken or fish yeah i'm, I'm mostly fish as well uh wow that's that's unfortunate none of us have had veal what a useless question sean all right um <laughs> let's let's move on okay you mentioned um the the stag, and I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about Will's subconscious, which not only transforms uh, the raven stag into a man stag now, but it also shows images of previous murder victims um, displayed throughout Hannibal's office as Hannibal and Will are having that session. What does this tell us about Will and his subconscious? Well, uh, first of all, it was fun because it let me use... Uh, Wendigo as a verb, as in Cassie Boyle uh, is was Wendigoed in that sequence, which uh, I thought just that that sequence as Will, I mean, it's just a visualization of Will piecing everything together or beginning to, and it's so effective. It allows you to bring back these really evocative images throughout the the season, particularly the first two of. Um, uh, it's Cassie Boyle, right? And then, um, then the friend, I don't, I can't remember her name, unfortunately. Um, less so the, the young man who, uh, was killed by, uh, Abigail or stabbed by Abigail. That, that image is less, less potent, but certainly, um, the first two, it lets you call back to these images, but having that black or sort of ashen, depending on how, you know, the color is, is tuned, um, it it stops you from focusing in on that and and on the the image of that it it allows it to be a a a reference to the original rather than distracting from everything that else that's going on in that scene it's um there's a di element of distance by having that be be the in, in the Wendigo black it, it, it you know having that 
visual tie to the stag, the Wendigo, and by extension, the stag, really does constantly remind you throughout that scene of Hannibal and his uh, culpability in all of these crimes and all of these murders. Uh, and again, it's just part of what makes this episode, I keep using this word, I don't have a better word, it, part of what makes it so satisfying, allows you to, to, to kind of just see how so much of this season, not everything, but so much of the season has been leading to, to this point, has been leading Will to, to put everything together as, you know, as he must to make the realization that he does at the end of the episode. Uh, as for the, the stag and the Wendigo, there's be a little bit of that in spoiled meat as well, <laughs> but um, you know it. It's so fitting that the the stag is you know this image that keeps recurring. We've questioned it precisely what it means um, at various points during this this first season, but you know what it means to us in general, and to have it transform here as Will is at his you know not his most unstable, seeing as he you know at least has been to the hospital and is on meds and is a bit clearer than he was, but certainly at, um, you know, at, at one of his least stable points, certainly, um, and after having this serious trauma, or actually, I guess it's, you know, again, spoiled meat. Uh, you just, you're not going to be allowed <laughs> to say anything. Yeah. So ha when having Will, start really piecing everything together and having it make that transformation is I think very fitting, not only for the fact that this is a finale and the show will be transforming into something different next season. I mean, it has to with Will being arrested. Um, but it, it shows that like we're on the next stage of evolution. And there also then maybe is a distinction between the stag and the Wendigo. How much do they overlap and how much are they uh, separate entities? Um, I think it's it's a very powerful visual that it, and it follows throughout the episode. And once again, that's another really satisfying element. When we have the reveal, I mean, that's just it's fantastic storytelling, visual storytelling in that moment. And it also makes you wonder if I think we're, we're supposed to connect it to Garrett Jacob Hobbs. We have to with that same line of dialogue. Do you think are we supposed to infer that 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 Garrett Jacob Hobbs was seeing something in that way. I mean, I can't think that that makes any sense. What do you guys think about about that? Was, was does Garrett Jacob Hobbs also see Hannibal? I don't think so. Um, I think all of these things certainly gravitate around Will, and so we get to see other people's perspectives through his. I don't. I don't think that it works the other way around. But but it's still very effective the way that they do use Garrett Jacob Hobbs um, in that scene where we're looking up and, and Jack is there and next to him is Hannibal as the Wendigo. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just like this need that Hobbs had to be again, like, like Hannibal, to be seen, to be understood. Um, and so his last words are more of a, do you see me? Do you understand what I see? Do you understand, you know, all of that? And I think that 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 is mirrored with Will's line there. Also, it's it's Hannibal's people suit, person suit falling away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Noel, any thoughts? <laughs> Sorry, I feel like I I keep, I keep monologuing. That's <laughs> no, good. Uh, and I think that after we finish recording, you should go copyright the the color Wendigo black because that's certainly something that's very accurate. <laughs> Noel, is there like a silver lining here? 
despite the fact that our protagonist goes to jail and he's framed for crimes that he didn't commit, the fact that even in a state of uh, encephalitis that his subconscious is, is able to piece these things together so that he does achieve clarity, is that rewarding uh, or satisfying or effective? Um, I suppose, maybe. <laughs> um, I I think it's satisfying in the sense that I Will is able to figure it out, but I think one of the things about that scene where that Kate was just talking about um, is that it's not so much that Will figures it out, it's that Hannibal is essentially monologuing and gloating about, look at everything I did, now it's all coming together. It's kind of that inverse, it's, it's Hannibal's version of the villain saying, this was my master plan all along. And the, the hero having that dawning realization that they've just played into the villain's hands. That's what that scene essentially is, is Hannibal saying, these are all the bodies I killed. And then I made it look like you did it. And by, and Kate, by the way, it was Sutcliffe's bodies at the desk, not the, um, not the boyfriend. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, you're so, right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that's really kind of why that I don't know that that scene is satisfying in that sense. I think it's one of those rare instances where Hannibal actually gets to act like a villain and explain everything. And I think that's why it's not totally satisfying in that regard. Um, but at the same time, it's it's yeah, no, it's Hannibal's way of doing that kind of narrative trope and doing it very differently, very subtly, and also just in a really kind of different way, because the way that scene is just shot, I love it so much, because it's inside Will's head, because we come out of it by Will opening up his eyes as he's seeing Hannibal at his desk with the man stag behind him, and the association clicks in, tentatively clicks in anyway. And but we're cutting to Hannibal sitting at his normal therapist chair back and forth through Will going through the room. And it's not entirely clear if Hannibal's in his office or if he's in the office space that Will has designed in his head. And it's just visually just really rich. And from what I understand, I was again listening to the commentary track for this is that they filmed it where Will doesn't move around, he just sits, and Hannibal talks, and Will talks, and then they broke it down so that Will would be moving around, and I think, based on how it looks, it just looks like they use shots of Hannibal talking as if you were talking to Will, sitting across from him, and it's just such a visually rich sequence, even with, even without the um, ashen bodies that are around there. I think it's, it's just so good. It's so good, Sean and Kate. It's so good. <laughs> I literally have so good in my notes many times. <laughs> it didn't even that didn't even click with me. Um, you're comparing it to Hannibal Hannibal's version of the antagonist saying, "This was my master plan." Uh, it didn't click. He's with me. gloating. It's great. Saying this was his design. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. He's gloating, and that's he doesn't get to gloat directly to Will very often. I mean, everything he does to set up Will is kind of like gloating, but this is Hannibal doing as much gloating as he can possibly get away with while still getting away with it. 
And the reason that didn't click is because I was so struck by Hannibal's, not Mickelson's, but Hannibal's performance in this episode, um, being able to just word things in a way that it's so convincing, you know, like he, he repeats uh, the question to Will, like, uh, when was the last time you saw Abigail? Like, as if he's legitimately concerned that Will has killed Abigail, um, even though that he, he knows that, well, I guess we assume that he didn't have a part in that. Um, but yeah, Hannibal's just very convincing, and so the, that's probably what was blocking me from, from seeing that. But that's that's wonderfully interesting. Well, speaking of Hannibal's performance, I gotta say one of the one of the notes I have about the opening of the episode, uh, not the first sequence, but uh, when Hannibal arrives, is just I feel like it would be hilarious to watch that scene with someone who didn't know about Hannibal because he doesn't. I don't think he calls him Hannibal. By like by name, so if 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 someone had not seen the rest of the season and just saw that first scene, you would absolutely just buy into the face value of it. Of uh oh, what's happened with this creepy, shaky, sweaty dude? And then the the friend comes in and just because because not only Mass Mickelson but Hannibal just he straight up plays performs like oh shit. You know, like, like there's like resignation and, and not quite horror, but you know, the way that, that Hannibal plays that and by extension, Mass Mickelson and the direction is, and everything. If you hadn't seen, if you didn't know who Hannibal was, if you didn't have a sense of, of who the character was, you would straight up believe he was completely sincere. Like he has like a moment where he's kind of off to himself where he does like the, Deep, like gulp like you know steadying breath thing before he goes in to talk to his friend and get, convince him to turn himself in and everything i just thought that was fascinating yeah i have it's... so many things to say about that and spoil me <laughs> we'll get there we'll get there the <laughs> listeners are so frustrated like man stop talking about spoiled meat just just get there already um and we will i promise uh, but yeah it, it's a master class in layered acting i think which is wonderful i remember what i was going to say had nothing to do with the point that I was making because we're going to play the correction game because uh, Noel, you said it was Sutcliffe, not the boyfriend, and it wasn't a boyfriend, right? It was the brother, Nicholas Boyle, right? Yes. Right. It yeah. was it was Sutcliffe, <laughs> not the brother. Uh, yes, I, I was still wrong. Um, the other thing, <laughs> the last thing I have to say about that subconscious scene while we're still in the area of that, of discussing that, is that um, this is, a, and like you said, Noel, this is similar to a monologue, like a monologuing kind of sequence from a villain. I didn't make that connection as, as strongly um, as you do. As you do, I don't. I mean, obviously it's there, but I'm I focus more in on Will than I do on Hannibal in that moment. But we've seen this scene many times on different shows of um, putting the pieces together, and usually it's really pedantic. And I mean, I already referenced um, uh, Psych. You know, or, or the house, the realization moment that clicks everything in. So on Psych, at this point, they, like, towards the end of the run, they would just literally, like, flash back to something and, like, highlight it so the audience can see it. It really is very uh, hand-holding and everything. And what I think is particularly impressive about this sequence is that it could easily feel that way, but it doesn't. I think the scoring certainly helps with, really helps make... Like the flashbacks we get of stuff we've already seen, and this is when he's at the house, when Will's at the house as well. Um, 
it makes it feel very organic and um and really fits with will's mental state but i just thought it was worth commenting on just how easy it would be for the dawning realization sequence and there's a couple of them in this episode to feel really uh forced or or labored and to not be handled well this is how you do that kind of a sequence well uh and there are many shows that could learn a thing or two by watching this episode without a doubt all right um i've got one more question before we move into the recurring segments uh, for Noel. Hannibal describes the appeal in this episode uh, of having a child, and this is during the conversation um, that he has with Bedelia. And the appeal, he says, is having the opportunity to, to guide, to support, and uh, in some ways to direct a life. Uh, given that he claims he has no interest in... I guess, imaginatively living beyond his death. He talks about reputation, um, but he, he seems to claim that he doesn't have a, a desire to do that. What, of what use is a child figure to Hannibal Lecter? Because we certainly see him guide, support, and direct characters in this series. Spoiled meat. Um, <laughs> um, no, um, I think part of this is, again, an issue of performance. Is him wanting to think through this idea of, or displace that idea of influence and the that desire that, oh, no, influence is only possible through children, it, leading them and molding them is only possible through children. And I think that's the idea to kind of downplay that he's attempting to play, sorry, play up is that idea that he only views it as this when it, as being related to children. And in fact, he views it as related to everyone because he's so much better than everyone else that he just knows better. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if we can expand too much about this right now, but uh, we'll put a, a bookmark there. So let's let's move. Well, before we move on, how, Kate, how's your your drink going? Is the the mixture still tolerable? Oh, I finished it a while back. I'm uh, almost done with my my little mini bottle of champagne at this point because this is this is going to be like the longest spoiled meat segment ever. <laughs> it will be uh, without a doubt. Yeah, so, but it, it went, you know, again, like I said, the, the the dry finish of the cognac worked well with the not overly sweet ginger ale, but, like, it really, it, it worked. I would not, it would not be my go-to, but if I was, you know, looking to kill off that bottle, I could certainly, I could have a, a couple more of those over the next few weeks or something, and that's, I think it's, I think it's legit. So if you have some cognac out there that just is sitting there and you don't have a use for it and you don't want to just straight up drink it, Try it out. Cognac and ginger ale, let me know what you think. TheTelliversageGmail.com <laughs> Yeah, we're taking just a very brief analytical break. I, I do encourage you to, to seek out like a, a middle-class bourbon and uh, try that with, with ginger ale because it is really, really good. Um, See, but I'm not willing to buy a bottle of it, so I'm going to have to go – I'll have to go, go somewhere, go out, and the next time I'm like out for dinner looking to have a cocktail, I have to – Okay, what's a good what's a good bourbon that you recommend that I should try this with? 
Give me some names. Not whatever the well whiskey is there. Um, well, the distillery that uh, that Noel's drink is from, they do a, a bourbon called Breaking and Entering that I think is very good. And I think the bottle is only like 35 or something like that. So oh, that's it, fine. It should be relatively cheap uh, at a bar if you do find it. But that's that's fantastic. And I imagine well, I would usually drink it straight, but I'm sure that that mixes incredibly well with with ginger ale. I think Jameson and ginger ale, if you're looking at like really cheap stuff, is fantastic. Much better than, than Jack or Jim Beam with ginger ale. I'm going to have to get some of this breaking and entering. Uh, my, uh, my brother and sister-in-law are big uh, bourbon uh, fans. They do like um, brewery, they like tours and stuff, and they, they're connoisseurs. So if I don't like it, I can always give it to them. I'm sure, it, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I do it right, and I can report back next season on This Is Our Design. See if this has changed my mind about bourbon. Fantastic. Noel, how's your drink going? Oh, I finished it a while ago, and that was the last bit of alcohol I had in the house. I was saving it for this podcast, guys. I was Aww. saving these last two gulps <laughs> of gin for you two. I'm touched. I'm, I'm touched. simultaneously touched and sad because you don't have any more. I'm sad, too. Because it's, it's 11 o'clock where I am. I should be way more buzzed right now. <laughs> I keep shooting back the scotch. I'm, I'm going to be finishing like half a bottle by the end of this podcast. So yeah, we might fun. need to pause so I can get it, so I can re-up here at some point. But we'll see how it goes. Depends on how, <laughs> quite how long spoiled meat goes. But uh, we should probably get started on those. Yeah, well, okay. Let's go to the recurring segments then. That was our, our brief drink pause break, but we'll move on, of course, to Kate's Classical Corner. So, Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring in Sabaru? So there's one uh, classical piece, or, well, I should say pre-existing piece. It's not from the classical era because it's Vide Cormeum, or Behold My Heart, as uh, the translation from the Latin, um, by Patrick Cassidy, which first appeared in the film Hannibal and was scored, was was written, composed for that film, which is why it's it's classical in that it's written in that style, but it is not composed during that time period. Whatever, I think it counts. Anyways, it's based on Dante's La Vida Nuova, which is... Uh, um, oh, 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 I literally just read all of those poems, like, last month. <laughs> no kidding. Well, there no you bullshit. go. Yeah. Specifically, his sonnet, uh, oh man, I don't speak Italian. Um, uh, chiascun alma presa. I, they probably destroyed that. But, uh, tell me if I, correct me if I'm wrong here, I have that, uh, Dante's, uh, La Vida Nuova is a text about courtly love. Is that? Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, like, preamble to the Divine Comedy because, uh, Beatrice, the figure of Beatrice, I think, figures in really well, which is the the one that he struggles with through most of his writing career. And yeah, it's it's has to do with courtly love, but through several different stages. So the the love figure eventually dies, and so the Dante narrator figure, the poet, um, has to kind of deal with it afterwards. So it it's a fascinating, very short text actually. Um, it's I think it's only like forty pages or something. And a lot of that is just sonnets, so even on the page, it's much quicker than reading prose. So if anybody out there uh, is a, an English major, former English major, and you have not read La Vida Nuova, it's, it's wonderful. Not quite on the same level of the Divine Comedy, but very, very strong poetry. Uh, if only my friend Nick were here. He loves Dante, and he's read it in the original Italian, so he'd be the one to be here for this. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, even just the the title, Behold My Heart, I mean, it's such a perfect choice for this. Even if it didn't have that connection of being composed for the film Hannibal um, and being in, in the film, I haven't I have not seen Hannibal, the film, but uh, I believe uh, it is in a scene where Hannibal is watching. He's in Florence and he's watching an opera. And that is the the scene or the music that's in that um, show within the movie. Um but I think that's what it is. But but I mean, this is at the end. First of all, we see Hannibal self-score the moment. We see him like pause and kind of tilts his head. And that indicates to us he is providing his own uh, background, you know, like theme music for himself as he has this moment. He's making this moment of uh, going to see Will for the first time since he's been, you know, since he's put everything together. Uh, he's making it more grand. He's he's he chooses to score this moment with opera, and with Italian opera at that, and with "Behold My Heart." Hannibal has wanted to be seen all season. It's something that he uh, has and Bedelia have have talked about somewhat. He's been looking for a friend. He's been looking to be understood, um, and for someone to you know he puts up walls and then hopes somebody will climb them. Uh, who is worthy, of course. And um, and so he goes down to see Will and says, here I am. We, we, we finally, you know, I already know you, but now you know me. And ends with, you know, and that's why we get that lovely, uh, hello, Will, hello, Dr. Lecter. I mean, it's it's the, the, the culmination of their relationship to this point, and they are finally truly meeting for the first time. Uh, so it's fantastic scoring. It's a fantastic choice of, of song and uh, incredibly effective. Do you guys have any other thoughts on that particular scene or the m- music in that scene before I go on to other scoring for the episode? Just that it was absolutely beautiful and, and perfectly situated in that scene. Yeah, it was a real delight. Like I wasn't expecting that to just start playing on it so as someone who has watched Hannibal the film I was really really excited and about that and Kate you should watch Hannibal the film because we'll need to talk about um Mason Berger uh differences uh um, <laughs> but yeah no it was just really exciting and I hadn't I didn't even think about that idea of him tilting his head and starting up the score I just see that sigh that, that as he takes that moment that when he inhales and takes in the takes in the cell block and then kind of exhales, I mean, he's savoring that moment. He's savoring that sense of victory, but also that realization, Kate, as you point out, that Will finally gets to see him and how much pleasure this gives him. Is this yeah. the first time that we get a vocal track since the, the Molly Shannon episode? I know we got the, the vocalist actually in the episode, but is this the only other one where we actually get a vocalized track? I, I, unfortunately, I do not know uh, this piece well enough, um, but I, I thought of that, actually, that, that reference, because, of course, in um, it's Oof, right, episode four, where we have the boy soprano, which ties in so nicely with the young boy in that episode, uh, who has that scene with Jack. Um, here, we get, I was, I was reminded of that vocal line, that boy soprano line in that was featured in episode four. With the, when the, I, I don't know if it's another boy soprano. I, I, I want to say it's not. I want to say it's like a tenor. Um, comes in with a solo line partway through that, the clip that's used in this moment. 
But I definitely, you know, I, I it's one of the few. There has been other vocals because, of course, we had um, in episode seven, Sorbet, we had the the the, the soprano, the who was doing the Handel, uh, Giulio Cesare, and then we also had several other. You know, we had the Faust, we had um, we had some other stuff in there that had vocals. But in this context, I mean, it is one of the 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 few that have had text since then or vocals since. Since episode seven. Interesting. Yeah, I completely forgot about the Faust, but yeah, that's an uncommon thing in Hannibal, which is weird because every time that it crops up, um, it it works really well. Yeah, it's always a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and it just again, I tying so that last sequence specifically has the shout out to Silence of the Lambs and also to Hannibal. It's just such a beautiful melding of all these different things. As for the rest of the scoring in the episode, um, I just have a few few notes. The the opening sequence with the ear, uh, I mean, the scoring is just incessant. There, there's percussion in there, the standard sort of um, Hannibal disturbing sort of percussion. But it's also, there's, there's a shuddering to it that fits very well with the visual aesthetic in that scene and the, you know, Will's uncertainty. Um, that that's layered sort of on top of the percussion. Um, there's also sort of like, there's like a groaning sound. I, I swear I heard some engines, <laughs> the rev of, of whirring or building up of, of, of engines, a very mechanical feel to that scoring, which of course, uh, is contrasted really nicely with the Alana and Jack scene, both going into that scene and then, um, through it where we have this really subtle romantic, uh, cello and and piano scoring that that goes underneath their their conversation. I mean, it's really it's very you have to crank the volume to even really hear it because it's it's so very much underneath what's going on there. But in comparison to Will, who's so lost and uh, and absolutely uncertain of what's going on, you have this very human, uh, sorrowful moment with this really beautiful. Uh, instead of the mechanical sound, you have the the warm sound of the strings um, in that scene there. Also, when we go from that, again, back to that, that really mechanical feel, we go immediately to, to Hannibal, and we have this held... I want. I don't know what note it is. It feels like it's a G, but it might be a different note. Underneath, and then this the percussion comes in at this really dissonant... Uh, I want to say, like... I want to say it's like a major seventh, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, interval on top of it, which... Because the 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 note underneath is so again so soft and so subtle, you don't even necessarily realize that a pitch center has been established for you, so that when the percussion comes in, it's it's dissonant and jarring. Um, it's just again the 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 way that that the levels of of the score are handled is really impressive to me in this in this finale. It's just like just like you haven't realized you know just how jarring. Hannibal, a presence Hannibal has been in Will's life until you kind of, you know, you, you don't realize that a, a basis has been set for you until something comes in and sets it off till Hannibal, uh, you know, arrives on the scene and makes everything uh, disconcerting and uh, dissonant. Uh, as, you know, and the last thing I have here uh, is, is that the, the Wendigo sequence of Hannibal and Will, where the scoring is again, very distant, lots of dissonant percussion, um, and and I do like I mentioned earlier, I do think the scoring really helps to keep the the flashbacks and the piecing together of everything that we get from 
from Will throughout the second half of this episode to keep it uh, fresh. Um, much like the score as a difference in scoring in season two will shape a sequence we'll see more than once and keep it from feeling like a retread. That's not spoilery. Um, that also happens here. Very carefully, not spoilery. <laughs> very carefully, not spoilery. I also, again, the, the ticking that's been present since the very first moments of this show in the pilot when Will starts with that pro um, uh, projection where that we have that just sort of ticking. Not It's not a tick, it's percussion, but um, that... Uh, that projection sound has now bled over and is not only in his projection and only in his dreams, but is pervasive in other, other scenes as well. And so just that, you know, that, that auditory callback or through line really through the season has been very effective and is effectively used here. So that's, that's what I have for the scoring in this finale. It's been so much fun diving in, you know, doing a deep dive into the music every week. And, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna miss doing that while we wait for Hannibal season three to start up. And I will as well. Yeah. Uh, Noel, did you want to mention anything about the, the score or should we move on? Well, the one thing um, I'll point out is that that kind of incessant roaring sound, that whirling sound that it recurs throughout the episode is something called... I'm the bull roar? Yes, it's that. Yeah, it's, it's an ancient instrument. Right. Yeah, no, they were talking about it in the commentary track and it's just fascinating to me. And it's just, it's so interesting sounding. Like, so way over my head. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, like, what is it? It's just like a board attached to a rope, and you just swing it over your head, or how does it work? How <laughs> oh, is that an instrument? Well, I mean, because it makes a sound. Anything can be an instrument. I mean, you can hit any one thing against another thing, and that's an, an instrument. Um, it is. It's a. It's a really. It's an ancient instrument um, that it was used to because it it really carries. So it was used to uh, communicate over distances. I mean, they they have bull roars that are dated to the Paleolithic era. Uh, so yeah, like when I say ancient instrument, I mean ancient instrument. S so basically, Sean, you don't know what you're talking about. Instrument. What's new? <laughs> um, but I mean, it was used in ancient Greece. It was used uh, in um, the by the Aborigines in Australia. I mean, it's there's you know it's, it's it was used all over the place, and it's uh, it's it's a a slat of of wood um, that's attached to a long cord, and um, you'd have serrations, you know, like you know along the edge of it that can be used or not depending you know on where the the bull roar is from but you you twist it and then you you swing it in a, in a large circle and and the it uh it it'll keep going and that, that just that makes the um the sound wonderful well now we've all been either corrected or chastised so that's perfect uh, go team <laughs> but but i mean it's really it's very interesting and like you said there there is a special feature on the season one dvds about the music um they they talk about the bull roar quite a bit there and uh there's hope we i had a great time talking about the the scoring on uh hannibal with brian wright so hopefully i'll get a chance to talk to him again soon um and and there's a lot of really very interesting uh, instruments that that pop up in in this uh, this series, and that's certainly one of them. That again, it can. There are certain elements in there that feel very modern, but that doesn't mean that they are. All right, 
Let's move on then to the devil in the details of the second of our recurring segments in which we talk about any other little things that stood out in this episode. I want to begin by saying, is was this like a mistake on the writing or was it purposely uh, Jack like not knowing what he was talking about? He He says, let me play the devil here. Not the devil's advocate, which is the usual phrase, but it's – am I just like misinterpreting that? Was that a mistake? Oh, I, I – this is Hannibal. It's probably not a mistake. Okay, If it so... is, all of our analysis is for not, which could easily be the case, but – and that won't stop us from doing it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's just a fun little – because I didn't even remember that or take note of that. So I think it just – in my head, I finished the idea of Devil's Advocate. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think they might be counting on that. And it might be a little, just like a fun little cheeky – thing um i don't know what do you think Noel? i think it it's probably intentional i mean just they just either it's i i'm going to go with intentional but it's entirely possible that whomever writes like types up the scripts just skipped over that word and Lawrence fishburne just memorized it that way and then on the set they were just like eh, keep it kind of like the way key and peel decided to call it liam neeson's because some kid screwed up the script <laughs> All right, well, well, we'll do this one quickly. So we'll do like a lightning round of devil in the details. So, uh, Noel, go. Um, my one big detail is just the effects, the post-production work that had to go into that first scene while Will is waking up and stumbling through his kitchen. Um, it's just, it's so vibrant. And some of the stuff that they stripped out of it, I'm assuming, because it's obvious that they did, like, a really shaky cam type stuff and then just stripped it out so, like, the essence is there. But it also creates this weird halo effect that around Will's head, and because the color has been saturated and mucked with enough, that it kind of almost looks like he's been, like, he's got, like, not quite to the extent that the angel killer is seeing folks, but his his head's like got this weird halo effect that made me think about the angel killer from the beginning of the show. And that's like my one big devil in the detail for this, I guess. Can, can we just linger on that for just a second? I know I said lightning round, but that was something that I wanted to talk about briefly that because it maybe one of you has a better uh, understanding of technical terms when it comes to this, but is that shaky cam? Cause isn't shaky cam like a handheld camera? It seemed more like a vibrating camera like a technique rather than yeah. a process. I'm not sure how to describe that better. Well, because it wasn't um, – it didn't feel like uh, handheld to me because it didn't it, – it wasn't um, – it was very measured. It was a specific vibration to it uh, as opposed to just, you know, like you'd have to be very controlled to get that precise amount of, you know, what I called shuddering in the score back and forth. Uh, so it's, it feels more like – post-production or like a programmed in motion on with the camera i mean i i would i would assume that was a post-production thing it's some sort of thing that they put onto the camera when they were filming it that causes it to like vibrate as they're filming it Mm -hmm. and then apparently they stripped all of that out digitally in post-production leaving just like that little bit of it there so it's not as overwhelming it just kind of gives you that sense that something's just off as opposed to something's really off 
so it's a combination of, I think, in-camera work, but mostly post-production work. Yeah, it's very effective. It really, I mean, it's been, a, this has just been such a fantastic uh, representation of someone losing their mooring uh, psychologically and losing their, uh, any sense of firm ground. I mean, throughout the, this last, uh, half of the season, but I mean, in these last few episodes specifically, it's just been such a wonderful visual element to the show. Uh, this is another fine example of it. All right. We'll continue with the, the details. Kate, did you want to go next? Uh, yeah, uh, I only have one. I have, again, it's funny. I, mean, I have all these color code my notes. Um, and I don't have any red here because it's pretty much all spoiled meat. The one th- detail, I guess, that I'll I'll give a shout out to, besides you know, ear, oh shit, <laughs> um, I think they could have done that better actually, because when I watched it, my immediate reaction to the ear was we never saw that the ear wasn't already there. For all we know, he didn't notice it because he's all messed up. But the ear was sitting in the sink the whole time. I said the same thing when I first watched it. Yeah hive mind because i was just like all summer <laughs> after it aired i was like hey we don't know will's not a reliable narrator you know how do we know that that ear wasn't just sitting there etc so um that i think if they didn't if they didn't intend for us to you know for me to spend all summer defending that as not a legitimate piece of evidence um they should have done something different my my actual devil in the detail though is winston i'm so glad we get that shot of winston it's a callback to the pilot. He's again. He's he's all. He's clearly run off from the person who was holding his leash, and but which is you know it's a bit of a stretch to have him look dirty again like he was first introduced and with a leash, the way he's first introduced. I, but I think it's just such an important callback to the pilot and uh, a reminder. I mean, because if you hadn't already seen, if you didn't know that Hannibal was responsible for all of this stuff. If, if somehow you watch the pilot and then you watch this, it's a reminder of this is who Will is. He's the person who saw Winston by the side of the road and pulled over and helped and cleaned him up and took care of him. Uh, you know, it, it's another really, I think, strong and positive shout out to to who Will really is. You took my Winston sad face, devil in the details. <laughs> well, do you have any other ones? Because that is basically. It for me. Lots of spoiled meat, not very much uh, devil in the details. Yeah, I got two more. Uh, one of them was Will uh, breaking out of custody, so him, I, I guess, breaking or bending his, his thumb, dislocating, whatever it was. Um, the fact that that was like, very easy for him to do, um, I, I guess because it's Will Graham that they didn't expect like for him to be dangerous or anything, so they only had one, one person there watching him. Um, but but also the fact that it kind of mirrored that Abel Gideon scene that we got a couple episodes back, that was good. And then the other one was when Will mentions that uh, if it had just been Abigail, so not the, the the remnants of the other four victims that had been found in his house, but if it had just been Abigail, he actually would have believed it. I think that that's a great point for him to make because of how that interior struggle um, has been portrayed so powerfully. Uh, throughout the entire season that he has just gone deeper and deeper into Garrett Jacob Hobbs' head uh, that, that he would have bought that. So it almost makes you wonder Hannibal's elaborate setup, if he had just done that, uh, would it have been even more successful than it was uh, to some extent. So. And that's a fun connection then with Jack in this episode where um, until 
until Will starts uh, defending himself or saying that he didn't do it, Jack is willing to think maybe he didn't or maybe there's extenuating circumstances. But as soon as he's like, no, this is, I didn't do it, that's when, that's what pushes him over the edge. So it's like a similar progression with Will. Oh, it's, it's, it's uh, Abigail. Okay. Uh, maybe something happened. It's everyone. Bullshit. I would not do that to my flies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Noel, anything else? Or shall we move on to the, the much anticipated segment? Uh, just one more thing. I love Alana's dress in this episode, the orange leopard print that she's wearing. I love it so much. And if I were prone to wearing dresses, I would wear all of Alana's clothes because he has the best dresses ever. Well, that's that's something for season three, I guess. <laughs> Picture evidence. Well, and it's also just to take a because this will be my last opportunity until season three. I'll take a slight detour. She is like I mentioned it previously this season. She's the queen of the wrap dress. Um, and I love how it's orange leopard print, right? Normally, that's what they dress uh, skank number two in on on television. Uh, if they, you know, it's just that's not normally the kind of outfit they would give to a character with Alana's personality and descriptor. And I love that. And she wears it really well is the other thing. I mean, it looks mm -hmm. perfect on her. And it's also one of those dresses where, based on what we know about her and her other, like, costume choices it's basically just like yeah i can see her having this in her closet and not being surprised by it at all mm -hmm. all right uh kate did you want to refill or shall we move on um well seeing as noel is unable to i will i will forsake i, I will not uh, uh indulge in don't it. let that Kate, do not let that stop you. I was in Austin all last week, and I had a, I developed a cold, and I could not drink anything because I was on cold meds. I developed a cold in ninety nine degree weather. Please refill your drink. I, I still, I've got, I've still got some champagne. I'll, I'll be fine. And I am getting progressively more drunk, so we'll see how this works out. Cheers. <laughs> so now we will move on to the final of our recurring segments for this podcast. Although there will be other material to follow afterwards as this is a season finale uh but this of course is spoiled meat so if you have not seen season two of hannibal please fast forward now i i don't even know where to begin one of you begin. i do i do I... No. <laughs> <laughs> okay guess guess goes first i mean let's just start at the beginning and get back to this idea of hannibal as a performance and talk about how great hannibal is at pretending I didn't just shove an ear down this man's throat. <laughs> and it's just, it's so good because he's like, Kate alluded to this as he's talking earlier, and I'm just like sitting in my chair going, but he does this weird like turn, half turn thing as if he's not quite sure where to move. And it's all the stuff that goes, this is a man who is selling this idea that he has no fucking clue what's going on. And it's so good because then we find out that he shoved an ear down Will's throat. What was the chronology there? Was it like oh he God. came back from Minnesota and then did Hannibal like break into his house that evening? This, this is one of those things where I don't think the chronology makes sense. And it's one of those instances where I just chalk it up to the fact that even though I don't 
We've only seen it once. Hannibal's plastic clear bodysuit is magic. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only explanation because I'm not like you, Sean. I'm not entirely clear on that idea. And frankly, all I can think is that Hannibal was sitting in his car waiting for Will to call him (laughs) and then just (laughs) sat and waited some more. So it's reasonable amount of distance from Hannibal's house to Will's house. Because that's the only thing that makes sense to me in how Will threw up the ear and Hannibal showed up, but also having shoved the ear down his throat. Okay. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Kate. So from Baltimore to Minnesota by car uh, takes 19 and a half hours. Uh, So them driving – like this this show, how many times has someone – Gone to Minnesota uh, this season. It's ridiculous. In Will's yeah. defense, he did fly back from Minnesota. Yes. But once they, they flagged it at that point, though? Well, the, that one, there would be a record of it. In this episode, they drive. Uh, we also had um, Abigail go to Minnesota to unbury. We we assume it's I assume it's Abigail. Technically, it could be Hannibal, but I think it's Abigail. Go to Minnesota and undig uh, the body of um, the brother. I mean, just people just are jaunting over to Minnesota like this is I don't know, twenty four's version of L.A. It's really ridiculous. Um, but I like to think that because it's such basically it's like a day's driving if you don't need any sleep. Uh, I like to think this of, you know, Hannibal just kind of like popping in to to say hi to Will or whatever. And Will's not there. And he's like, hmm. He figures out that he's gone to Minnesota and and then goes, OK, well, cracks his knuckles and sits down and starts remaking some lures and just kind of hangs out at the house all weekend is feeding the dogs. Yeah, and, feeding them sausage <laughs> that's actually human meat. You know, like I just like ha- like to have this kind of ridiculous um, thing, and then and then you know, uh, when then then when Will gets back, you know, he he finishes his work, he leaves. Will Will gets back, and um, and and uh, he just like he's kind of just hanging out. Drops in again, goes, oh look, you're having an episode. Very convenient. Let's shove a, a ear down your throat uh, for you to cough up. But I mean, it's he shoves it down his throat enough. That it comes back up, because if he shoved it down his throat until it was completely in his stomach, it would be dissolved. Yeah, it'd be digested. So yeah, and that would ruin everything. So I mean, just like it's ridiculous. Well, not only maybe Will didn't have an episode so much as Hannibal induced the episode because remember, yeah, we see with the lights, he induces those. He can induce those episodes, so that's probably what happened as well. Mm. So yeah, yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that there's that. Yeah, yeah, certainly I, that is a certain definite spoiled meat thing. But when you talk about Hannibal's performance, we got to talk about Hannibal and Bedelia's scene because who the fuck is that for? I don't know. That's I mean <laughs> that's entirely for us. I'm assuming. Yeah. Because I mean, I was totally convinced, and I was arguing with people because there was one commenter in that season finale review who's just like, "She's not dead," and I'm just like. Motherfucker, they're eating her. <laughs> She's talking about veal as a controversial dish. That's 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 Abigail. Well, and and Bedelia, I'm sure thinks it is, and yeah. Hannibal wants Bedelia to think it is. Yeah, but 
it's some other person or, or it's actually maybe veal. or it's actually veal. <laughs> um but i mean so when you first watch it you think okay hannibal may uh, like how much of this is performance how much of this is genuine or this is hannibal's way of performing but he is but he what he he's actually feeling something he it wouldn't be expressed as this but this is his way of translating how he's feeling uh to bedelia who doesn't know what's going on but then you realize that you know after season two you realize bedelia knows everything like she's got a really strong sense of what what else going on so and, and then Han hannibal knows that bedelia like it's 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 the friends episode he knows she knows he knows she knows so I, I i can't decide if if i think it's awesome or completely contrived well and maybe it's both here's the thing i honestly feel like that scene just because of everything that and plus the way that abigail just kind of like disappears are you going to have to kill me now and it's just that tender oh yes i am um, type of thing <laughs> Where I feel like that kind of a suggestion of that ambiguity and suggestion works a lot better than, say, what they do with um, what Will does with Freddy midway mm -hmm. through season two. Yeah. And it's just that ambiguity plays up a lot more so that when we find out that Freddy's still alive, it's just like, oh, Okay, yeah, you hadn't really earned that show, but they earned the idea of Hannibal killing Bedil killing Bedelia, killing Abigail, but also cutting off her eel ear to make it look like Will had done it. Yeah, yeah. and I, I remember watching the season two finale, and I didn't realize until afterwards, like looking on Brian Fuller's Twitter, well, where he like post you know post production pictures and stuff like that. Um, we didn't even get a clear shot of the ear being gone, I think, in, in the season two finale. So I'd always assumed that, you know, they had, he had somehow managed to carve out another piece of, of her tissue or flesh or whatever and form it into an ear. And, and for that, this to, is an elementary, Sean. You can't grow something that. <laughs> I mean, that's where I got the idea. Yeah. But uh, it's how horrible for Abigail. So to have been, like, not a part of this episode. Uh, because her ear has been cut oh, off. Part of her was here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> good God, yeah, and you know, and I, I never relinquished the belief that she was alive. And this is before Hannibal the series like really hammered home the idea of if the person is not seen dead on the screen, then he or she is in fact not dead. I, I didn't relinquish that opinion and yet I still really bought into that idea and it, it had such a big impact of my viewing of season two that all of this is in the aftermath of this incredibly important character maybe not the most three-dimensional character in the series but somebody who really matters to at least a couple people and really to three people in the series and I and I really bought into it yeah um you know and I think so much of why we so fully buy into at least I so fully <laughs> bought into this notion that she was dead was because of the scene with Bedelia. Even like just that knowing that H Hannibal, uh, Hannibal eyes and Hannibal, uh, you know, like there's no need for him to pretend 
with Bedelia. I mean, he does he does to a certain extent, but he is so much more uh, straightforward with her than uh, than with anyone else. Like if if he was having this emotional scene with uh, any other character able to see him, it would make more sense to me. Uh, but and I guess maybe this way, if she's questioned then he did have an emotional response to everything that was going on. But, I mean, I just kept watching the scene going, just, like, trying to imagine what Bedelia's thinking, which I just, like, if you put in, a, like, a like subtitles of her thought process in that scene, I think it would be hilarious. Sure. Sure you feel the L. Oh, um. Whatever. Huh? Sure, sure these te tears are absolutely genuine. It, like, when she's, it puts a whole other context on her dialogue. Where she's like, you know, this their loss is is significant, and you should consider Will a loss. And where she's like, do I really have to? You're if you're going to pretend, I guess I have to pretend right. through they're, this. They're both play acting for one another's sake. There's just like a fun when you when you think about it in that context. And again, this could just be me me reading in stuff that's not there in Anderson's performance. But there's just like this fun. Uh, well, I I this time through I saw what was a fun element of just like sort of. Uh, exasperation to some of, you know, what she's doing there, where it's just like, really? Okay. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, exasperation, amusement, something like that. And I, I apply that as well. And it made it certainly more entertaining, but it made sense as well. And yet I'm still not entirely sure how much of the information she possesses, because it's in the, the first, the second season premiere, right? Or maybe the second episode where she uh, goes to Will and says that she believes him. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know even then if if this is her acting on hard evidence or if it's mostly a hunch, a very educated hunch, obviously, because she knows Hannibal probably better than anybody else in the series does, um, but a hunch nonetheless. Well, I mean, it just, it makes sense. I mean, she, because of her own experiences with Hannibal, with the way she was manipulated into killing her patient who attacked her. I mean, like, this is, she's been down this road before, and she's a different person than Will, so she's, it's been a different path. But uh, she, she knows who Hannibal is, and she, you know, it, and again, it's such a fascinating character to try to parse how much is her um, fear of Hannibal, and how much is her uh fascination. just being fast exactly her fascination with him um how much is she drawn to and repelled by him how much is she acting in self-preservation i mean it's really it's very it's a very interesting character and the, the correct answer is what they're doing which is to let the audience guess because if they gave a hard answer it would be terrible um so seeing how they handle that in season three should be very interesting and she's gonna be a series regular in season three i'm so excited i okay so we're gonna have series regular jillian anderson and series regular right uh chilton uh, raul esparza i don't think he can be a series is he a series he's coming back i don't think he can he's be a back. series regular because he still has law and order svu yeah i'm not sure exactly but i know they said he's gonna be in a lot of season three he'll at least maybe be more prominent in the back half since they've said mm -hmm. that the structure of it's going to be hey we're hanging out in europe it's cool and continental Mm -hmm. swingers in Europe <laughs> and then we'll get back to the FBI and so Chilton will be there and 
I think that'll what'll happen more. Plus, that helps Lawrence Fishburne's schedule as well with Blackish. Have they announced? Yeah. Um, so we have a, a French theme for the the first season, Japanese for the second. Do we know? I thought it was, it's Italian. It's Italian. Italian. Yeah, they're doing Italian. Okay, yeah, beautiful. Italian. Okay, I'm I'm really looking forward to that now. Uh, okay, more spoiled meat stuff. Let's let's go. Have both of you seen the blooper reel for season two? Yeah, it's so fun. <sighs> Have you seen it? I haven't seen it since like they released it and like pulled it down. Okay, there was so. there was that one moment where uh, uh, Jimmy and Bimmy were were cooking in um, Chilton and they were talking like about all the things that were on him, you know, wallet of however many dollars, and they're like. The cock ring or whatever it was. Yes, uh, yes, yes, and, yes. And I was, as I was rewatching this episode for this podcast, uh, with Will in that situation as well, I, I could not help but laugh um, because it's the same thing. So I was just waiting for uh, Jimmy in that circumstance to, to say that. But what a wonderful blooper reel. I don't know if you remember <laughs> most of it, but there's one when they're looking at the, the bee uh, victim and uh, Brian says that, you know, his head has been caved in or whatever Lawrence Fishroom just says what <laughs> like really surprised it's it's, it's out of character it's, it's hilarious uh, anybody who's not seen the blooper reel for that please go seek that out it's it's fantastic it's a lot of fun I and mean, this is such a you know dark after this first season finale and for people who have not seen it yet when they get to it, assuming I'm assuming you aren't listening so if you're listening right now I'm assuming you've seen the season two finale you just you need that blooper reel to like Cleanse the palate and <laughs> tell you the world is going to be okay. Uh, to go back to, spo- to spoiled meat, though, uh, I mean, we got to talk about Will hunting the stag that he does at the beginning of this episode because that's exactly what he does at the beginning or at, through throughout the si- season two finale as well. Yeah, so he's hunting the stag in the beginning. Uh, when he shoots it, thinking that it is the stag, he comes across... It's wounded, the but then it's, yeah. yeah. There's blood, and then it's the man stag. Yes, whereas in the season two finale, uh, he he's being guided by Garrett Jacob Hobbs to shoot at, and we don't see it get hit, but then we see it later dying. Um, so that, I mean, just, it's a clear, I, I didn't remember that part of it at all, but it's a clear tie-in, and with what uh, Brian Fuller has said, that the stag for him uh, because of course I'm of the opinion that once you, well, once a creator makes something and puts it out there, it no longer belongs to them, and their interpretation is interesting but not definitive. Um, so for him, it the stag is just Will and Hannibal's relationship. That's that's what it is. Um, so that's an interesting thing to hear that the stag is wounded, but then it recurs later. So how how do you guys see the differentiation between the stag and the Wendigo? Because they both appear throughout season two. Go no go. <laughs> well, I like that idea. I hadn't I hadn't heard that idea about him <clears throat> fuller describing it as their relationship. And now I want to go back and rewatch everything with that lens on. Yeah, um, but how how general is that answer though? Well, it's a pretty general answer, but I mean, it could be just enough for them to kind of make it work. I don't know. Like again, it's something I'd have to go back and watch and. Hopefully someone will get me the Blu-rays for my birthday in a couple of weeks. Anyway, um, <laughs> I like that idea. Um, and that idea, of the, but I think very much like th- I see the man stag very much as being not only a representation of 
Hannibal's without his man's without his person suit on, but also that idea. And we kind of we talked about this a little bit, and you all talked about this a little bit with other guests during season two, is that idea of the the that idea of becoming the man stag is becoming a murderer, becoming a killer, becoming something other than yourself. That that the becoming with the capital B that Thomas Harris likes to toss around a bit. Um, And I think that's where it is. is That's the difference I see through it is that if that idea of the stag, the stag itself is a relationship, then the man stag is that idea of becoming something other than yourself. Well, and what do you guys think of this notion? I mean, because we don't see it here. And then after the Wendigo, I don't think that we actually see the stag again in this episode. So it makes a return, but only in season two, this notion that he shoots the stag and it's like, it's like it, it sheds its skin. And now it is the Wendigo, which is this idea in the like you were saying of becoming, but much like Hannibal sheds this person's, the, the stag sheds its cuddly exterior <laughs> uh, and all in is revealed to be this, this demonic sort of, visage then i mean again and sean i'm gonna put you on the spot because we've already gotten those thoughts i mean how does then the in season two how how are those two differentiated obviously there are certain things you can do with the wendigo like uh like a five-way that you can't do with a stag in quite the same way. Um, but how do you separate oh, those you can two? do a five-way with a stag. I mean... Yeah, yes. yeah. It just requires more logistics, I would imagine. But um, yeah. anyway, so how do you see that distinction? Well, you mentioned, or you describe it rather, as it being the stag shedding itself. It does become two entities, and... Um, and just having briefly mentioned how devastating that season two finale is, part of that, on the metaphorical level, comes with the death of the stag when we see his, when we see it breathe its last breaths. Um, we we talked ad nauseum again about that uh, what the stag represents. Certainly, the Wendigo um, represents Hannibal or whatever evil he himself represents, which is more than than just Hannibal Lecter himself. I think that it's important to have that distinction in season two because a lot of season one has to do with using Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter um, as points of comparison as opposed to contrast. And then it becomes more the opposite in season two, I would say. And that's why we have two very different representations of it on that level. And not that's not to say that the stag, the raven stag in season two um, is always representative of Will, but I guess it's more representative of whatever the the opposing force of the, the man stag, the Wendigo is. So whether that's Abigail, which I think it was in a couple episodes, or another character, um, that's why I, I think that the decision to do that was a really smart one, even if Fuller just thinks it's representative of the relationship, which, okay. But for those of us who do these insane podcasts that go more than two hours, um, it is more than that. And I think that that's fine and, and we can interpret that in that way. Um, 
that's my response. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like I said, I've had a few drinks now. <laughs> well, it works for me. And I think more than anything, it just kind of highlights for me that I, I think I want to rewatch all of season two before we do season three, because I'm going to, I assume I'm going to have just as different a reaction to season two uh, when I rewatch it as I had to, to season one for the, for these podcasts. The amount of effort that I've put into Hannibal, the TV series that airs on NBC is ridiculous because <laughs> I well we all watched Hannibal as it aired the first time. I also rewatched it with my brother, and then for these podcasts, I watch the episodes twice. So I, I watch it once just to take it in. I watch it a second time and then take notes. So I have seen the first season four times, and I've seen the second season two times. That's a lot of fucking time. Plus, you know, doing these podcasts, coming up with like notes and and questions and stuff. So. I feel like NBC needs to pay us at some point. <laughs> well, that's never going to happen. But uh, yeah, like, and again, for those listeners out there who aren't aware, I'm just going to give you some love here, Sean, because the hardest part with these podcasts are coming up with thoughtful questions, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and and you have that's why I make you do all of that. Or I should say I didn't volunteer to do that because I think that's way harder. Uh, so I think that's, you know. Yeah, it's one thing to have thoughts and random, like, it's another to structure a conversation around it. So, yes, uh, you. I think you are you are king of the Hannibal thoughts, and uh, um, I, I would, I, I oh God, that's all very jumbled. Um, yeah, it, it takes a lot to really get a strong sense of what is worth discussing or what is most interesting in a particular episode. So I compliment you on that, on your... Uh, diligence for this season. Um, the last thing I have here for spoiled meat. Um, well, I guess I have two. Will trying to kill Hannibal in season two totally not cool, but he tries to kill him in this finale, and Hannibal's like, "It's it's cool. I'll give you one. Everybody gets one, apparently." <laughs> but it's, he's super it's again. Two. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful scene, and you totally buy into it. And in an alternate universe, what if things had gone differently? Yeah, it, it's a great point to make. Um, and then the last thing I have is just, I love this, um, with Will. The only thing I'm sure of is one of us killed Abigail. <laughs> nope. Ah, <laughs> uh, good times. That's, yeah. that's all of my spoiled meat. I'm out of uh, spoiled meat. My last one, because I'm, I'm going to let Noel finish the segment for us. Um, I don't know if this was immediately after the final commercial break in this episode. I, I should have taken better notes on it. But we come back from a commercial break uh, towards the end, and what we get is uh, rain as Hannibal and Will are driving to the Hobbs house. And, of course, very memorably in the season two finale, our final commercial break comes back as Alana's falling through uh, the, the window and there is rain. So, again, I don't know if Brian Fuller goes back and watches these things and purposely... Um, reconstructs them in different ways, but good God, the the amazing amount of uh, recurring images and callbacks in this is, it's not quite Matthew Weiner on Mad Men level, but it's approaching that in many ways. Well, no, I mean, that's what I was going to kind of get to to wrap us up, was this idea of finale symmetry between this one and this season one finale and the season two finale. I mean, even down to the idea of we have in the season one finale, we have Will and 
Hannibal facing off in the kitchen. And then in the season two finale, we have Jack and Hannibal facing off in the kitchen. But in both of these instances, someone else comes into the house to interrupt. So we've got Jack interrupting in season one and then Abigail interrupting in season two. And I mean, just the, these layers of parallels and symmetry, I just, I, I just love. So yes, totally Fuller and the rest of his writer's room are going back and watching stuff and saying, okay, how can we make this work? And how can we make this sing basically so that everything's in harmony with one another? And basically my big question is how do we continue this thread into season three (laughs) and making sure that everyone's still entering a kitchen at inappropriate times? (laughs) I didn't again, uh, as earlier, it didn't even click with me the fact that that showdown in this finale occurs in the kitchen. I think it has to do with because the season two one is lit so vibrantly that it's, of course, like it, you absolutely know that you're in the kitchen in that sequence. Uh, like all the props play a big role, whether that's uh, like a knife or a cutting board or a refrigerator door. Um, but I, because I guess the layout of the Hobbs house is so different, I didn't even didn't even connect that that both of those scenes take place in the kitchen i definitely thought of the season um season two finale when jack walks in the shot we get in this finale uh for season one of of him walking in the door and just kind of looking you know i i don't i it's been too long since i saw the season two finale for me to be able to say if it's a, a shot for shot you know duplication or if it's just because of how he's just entering and and, and Lawrence Fishburne's performance and the the authority that he always brings to Jack um with just his his physicality but i sur- i definitely thought of the, of that moment as well um when I was watching this. So it's nice to see him not alone. And again, because I'm so focused like you, Sean, because I'm so focused on what's happening in the scene and the relationship between the two characters and all of the subtext and all of the, uh, less sub text. Uh, it is just, I, I constantly don't think of the context of it. Like uh, the fact that, like you say, no, it's that it is in the kitchen and it's a different kitchen than a very different kitchen than, than Hannibal's. But still, it's that same connection. Um, in episode, uh, when we talked about episode 11, Sarah Bunting, Sarah D. Bunting referenced the connection of uh, life, death, uh, and, and with food. And so to have, again, this this, this connection with, the, and it's, Hannibal's such a character connected with food and connected with, with um, preparation of and all of that. So to have have this climax happen in a kitchen, but have the show not reference it or call attention to it, I think is really, it's a nice little touch for those of us who are in our second hour of talking about this uh, finale. They trust their audience to get it, which is not only something that we can't say about a lot of broadcast shows, but I think it's also something that we really can't say about a lot of the cable shows when we talk about cable shows, meaning a very small handful of the sheer amount of cable programming that exists. Yes, that was a small soapbox. It just, it really trusts its audience in a way that I think very few shows on television do to pick up on these things without, as you said, Kate, calling attention to it and saying, hey, look, repetition as a literary device, using literary device in its loosest term here. And I think that's just something that's 
feeds into this idea of Hannibal as this weird, special... Daniel um, Dan Feinberg at HitFix called it a unicorn. And I think that's probably the best description for Hannibal that I've heard, is that it's just this special unicorn in the television landscape. Definitely. All right, so we'll conclude uh, Spoiled Meat there. But, of course, because this is a season finale and we we don't care about time here, we're going to spend just a little bit more going over the, the best of, if both of you are up for that. No. Sure, why not? I haven't had enough to drink. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get in then to the best of, and this will kind of be the, the concluding part of this podcast. Um, I actually had him prepare for this. I completely forgot that we had done this for the second season, but uh, we'll have three uh, go-arounds here. That makes of which... two of us! <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first of which is favorites, killer slash tableau. And, and just as a reminder from this season, uh, of course, Gary Jacob Hobbs, The Mushroom Man, uh, Molly Shannon... The Angel Maker, Lance Henriksen, and the Totem Pole, uh, Tobias, uh, Eddie Izzard's Abel Gideon, and Georgia. Mansion. Uh, yeah, so I might be missing one or two off the top of my head, but I think that's most of them. So uh, we'll begin with Noel. Uh, favorite, it could be either Killer or Tableau, or if you want to do both, then that's fine. Um, well, no, mine happened to coincide, and I would be surprised if this wasn't Kate's either, but it's obviously the human cello. Yeah, the, well, see, the thing for me, it really depends on, like, the tableau is different for me, necessarily, than the kill, because the immediate thing I went to is by far the creepiest for me is, is, uh, Georgia under the bed. That's just like, oh my god, that is terrifying. Uh, but the tableau of that is less effective for me than the moment of being pulled under the bed. Right. So that moment is way more effective than really pretty much. It's like the creepiest, scariest, maybe not creepiest. It's like the scariest moment for me, probably in most of the se- the season, if not the series. But for tableau, um, yeah, the human cello is, uh, yeah, exactly. And then he plays it. I mean, that's what's that's what's great about it is that he plays it. And then the other one, I mean, like honorable mention to the Angel Maker, like Mushroom, you know, like Mush. It's like it's like uh, Human Cello and Angel Maker. They're like vying for first place there, depending on what's more disturbing to me that day. Uh, especially be just the knowledge that with the Angel Maker they were alive. That, you know, yeah. that makes a big difference. And then there's, there's a gap. And then it's mushrooms. And then it's totem. Again, alive makes a difference there. Then it's totem pole. Then it's a gap. <laughs> then it's like Molly Shan. Like that one wasn't as effective for me. Um, no. And, yeah. So that's, that's sort of where I am with it. I think the only other tableau that really stands out is not because it's like a gruesome tableau, but because it it's the bathroom from The Shining. Mm-hmm is the one with the uh, kidney removed and it's just it's the it's the bathroom from room whatever it is in the shining and it's just like that's cool but like a guy with missing a kidney isn't exactly all that neat how about but you Sean? room's great <laughs> for tableau uh i got to give it to the body totem um not because it's like the most gruesome just because 
I don't even know if it's the most artistic. It's the one that stands out. A for effort? Though. Yeah, A for effort, I Took guess. Took the most work. Because, <laughs> like, how the fuck did Han Hendrickson, like, put that up? You know, it's one thing constructing it while it's on the beach, but how is he in his feeble state able to, like, drag that back up? Pulleys, man. I guess. It's like, <laughs> uh, I guess we can't spoil it. Well, no, it's not spoiler or anything. Uh, it's like the tree in season two. So, mm -hmm. like, what are you supposed to do? Uh, in terms of the killer... Probably the most interesting for me was Abel Gideon. Um, I really enjoyed Izzard's performance of him. I, I thought that all that was great. But I, like you said, Kate, if I'm just looking at most memorable and not necessarily like most interesting character, Georgia, man. It's, it's the thing that stands out probably most prominently when I think about season one is how terrified I was the very first time I watched that episode. It was the context, certainly, because I was stupid and watched it at a bad time at night by myself. But There's no just, good time to watch that episode. <laughs> there isn't. Yeah, even <laughs> if you watch it during the day, it's the same. I don't know if any listeners out there play the Silent Hill series, but there's no good time to play Silent Hill 2 either because that's it's just so utterly terrifying. And what's really What's really funny is that I was thinking about that episode last week when I was watching Doctor Who, and I was just like, Stephen Moffat's got nothing on this. <laughs> I know, right? But nothing! <laughs> Yeah, I kept thinking, especially because in that Doctor Who, the hand thing, which keeping it spoiler free, the hand thing is just it's it's very slow and deliberate, which ties in thematically by the end of the episode of that Doctor Who. But it's like, like I'm sorry, you 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 have to follow this episode of of Hannibal, and it's just not even. There's no possible comparison. Perfect. All right. So the second of the three that I wanted to ask supporting character MVP for this season. And so this is somebody who's not included in the opening credits. So not Will, Hannibal, Alana, or Beverly. Uh, and obviously this is just regarding season one. So I know we get characters who appear in season two who have maybe more prominent roles there. But um, in, in this season, we've got, let's see, Gina Torres as Bella, uh, Bella uh, Chilton, Rallo Sparza, Gideon, Eddie Izzard, uh, any of the Killers of the Week, uh, obviously Casey Roll as Abigail Hobbs, Jared Jacob Hobbs, her father, am I forgetting anybody big? The Tex, of course, Beverly, uh, well, she's a part of it, but Jimmy and Bimmy. Um, Bedelia. Bedelia, yep, of course, Julian Anderson, and Freddie Lowndes, uh, Laura Jean Chorostecki, I guess is how it's pronounced, I have no idea. Um, I don't, I think those were the main ones, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll go reverse order. Kate? Okay, this one is actually pretty easy for me. If it's most effective, um, use of a character, like, like, um, <laughs> like a per capita thing, like per number of, like, per amount of screen time, I give it to Bella. But overall, uh, Chilton is good here, but he gets even better in in season two, uh, I guess spoiler alert, he lives. Um, but you know, if it's overall, um, I want to give it to Abigail because she's great. But I really think of her as a main character, so it doesn't. It feels like a cheat to say her. So I'm gonna go with Bedelia because I think she's really well used. I think uh, Jillian Anderson is fantastic. Uh, Bella is in and out, like she's in an episode and a scene or two. But in really, if Gina Torres is great, um, so best episode single episode guest star i'll give it to her but best supporting character 
throughout the season. Uh, I'm going to give it to Bedelia. All right, go for it, Noel. Um, I'm going to cheat. I'm sorry, Kate, and go, go with Abigail. <laughs> We're totally down with cheating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, um, it's got to be Abigail because even when she's not on screen, she's she's a presence. I mean, both her and I mean, for that matter, matter her father are both presences when they're not even on screen. But Abigail's just such a unifying presence for both Hannibal and Will and for Alana for that matter is just you can't not I think acknowledge the sheer impact that she has on this season and it gets even more ridiculous because of what happens in season two um so yeah no Abigail for sure really close runner-up would be Bella just for the ability to, and mostly it's just Gina Torres being able to come in, establish that character and say, this is Bella and this is who this woman is. And she does it in basically just that one episode because episode four never aired and you didn't air on the U.S. So we didn't get to see that episode initially. So, um, yeah, so Abigail and then Bella for sure, yeah. If we're going, again, I... I can't not pick Abigail, and I'm surprised that Casey Roll wasn't credited for being a series regular, because I think she features much more prominently. It was than, too expensive. Yeah, than, she was, than Beverly. She was, she, no, she was actually just too expensive for them, because apparently like a producer left the show so that they could pay for her. Weird. Yeah, because the only credit that I knew her from before this was her brief role in the first two seasons of The Killing, which wasn't even, like, a major role. It was kind of just a tertiary role, basically. Um, Yeah, I know. It's actually, like, a fun little thing about this show. Apparently, it's got, like, a nothing budget, but it looks like one of the most expensive shows on TV. So they hide that really, really well. So it doesn't surprise me to to know that that's why, um, because apparently they're just... They have, like, no money to make this show. But, um... Yeah, it's always fun. It's interesting to hear that because I it, you don't really see you don't see the budget constraints on pretty much any other part of the show, but um knowing how low the budget is that doesn't I guess that doesn't really surprise me. Yeah, and so for me that's that's the one uh just I mean, we talked about this when when uh Simon was on the podcast in the last one that if you watch it through the first time it's a little bit different because there's again there's a lot of things going on. It's a wonderfully creative series, and so you got the visual aspects, you've got the the surprising tweaks on the source material if you're familiar with that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's easy to overlook the importance of, of Casey Roll's performance and of Abigail Hobbs's presence in the season. But going back and watching this again just reinforced the idea that she is kind of like not just the supporting MVP, but perhaps the linchpin of the whole season. Like, everything certainly revolves around Will and Hannibal, and, you know, that's that's what this series really is at, at the end of the day. But Abigail is kind of just as important, only in, in a different way in terms of this first season. So well, she's got to be the number one. There's no Will and Hannibal without Abigail is the thing. There's not that weird my two dads dynamic. <laughs> without Abigail being there. There's nothing for them to really kind of like almost stay together and be concerned over her and start bonding in a way that isn't just patient therapist. 
So yeah, no, I I would agree that she's the linchpin of this season, absolutely. Please tell me someone has cut together the My Two Dads theme song, you know, like with <laughs> Hannibal footage, like with like the credits and everything. Tell me that's a thing. I I haven't seen like a video of it. I mean, they've done box art of it. I've seen like the box art for like the DVD of Reconstituted with the three of them on it, but nice. I don't think I've ever seen it done with the theme song. Knowing the Fanables, oh <laughs> no, you know what? Nobody wants me trying to edit footage. I'm <laughs> interesting <laughs> enough time editing audio, uh, but uh, knowing the Fanables, it's out there. Uh, and so, therefore, I would like to see it. So, any fanables listening to this, I'm sure there's a Tumblr somewhere that's done this because they're also creative. So, hook me up with a link at the Televerse on Twitter. Uh, my my honorable mention for this one, um, I mean the the head says Bella or Bedelia, but the heart says Eddie Izzard as Abel Gideon. I really like both of his episodes in this, and it's. It's just wonderful to see his performance, which is very um, contrary to a lot of what I had been exposed to previously of his material. And he fits in. It, that's probably the most uh, impressive part, is that he fits in so perfectly into Brian Fuller's Hannibal, which I would not have expected had I had a basis of what Brian Fuller's Hannibal looked like and uh, also a basis of what I knew Eddie Izzard to be in terms of a comedian beforehand it, it's weird how well it works and so that would be my honorable mention you know who's really sad he didn't get picked franklin franklin's oh, really yeah. sad he didn't get picked he's it's... he's complaining to us <laughs> about his therapist about us not picking him franklin i gotta say it made me look at dan fogler uh in a different way i already appreciated his uh him as a comedic actor uh, but it made me have a whole other appreciation for him. When I saw his name, he's on one of the mid-season shows this year that looks, honestly, the plot description makes it look terrible, the premise. But I saw his name, I was like, oh, maybe I'll watch that because of <laughs> Dan Vogler in Hannibal. Anybody who takes part in this series is, for at least the next couple shows that they're a part of, they, they get that bonus, I think. Um... The last of the categories is best episode. So I think that this is a little bit more difficult than it was with season two, because season two had a very clear cut. This is the best episode of this season. There was um, a correct answer yeah, in <laughs> season was. two. This one might be a little bit more difficult. So I'll begin um, by saying that, you know, I, because I hadn't remembered it as well when we had watched it, um, for this podcast, I thought that it was Sorbet, which is six, right? Or is that seven? That's number seven. That's the one that has the um, the feast and the organ harvester. Right. And I think, actually, um, my favorite episode of this season was eight, uh, which was titled Fromage. And that, and the reason being, or the reasons, um, it, it was twofold. One, the, the fight sequence between Hannibal and Tobias, uh, I don't, again, just like Eddie Izzard is able to get in. I don't know how they managed to fit that in so that that hand-to-hand -hand combat sequence didn't feel out of place in this series, which is very much not that kind of television series, but it works so well. The other part of it was uh, Will going into Tobias's basement at, at his shop um, reminded me very much of 
Therese going after Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs and almost shot as beautifully uh, and certainly with the same amount of tension for me. So it's weird because I appreciate Hannibal for very specific reasons and one of those is um, its ability to be quiet and incredibly effective and that was a very loud episode in many ways Um, and yet that's why I liked it so much. So that would be my, my pick was fromage episode eight, uh, Kate. Well, there's a few that stand out to me. I, I want to instinctively say sorbet, which is episode seven, which features all of that wonderful classical music. I just, it's, it felt like a love letter to me, you know, where it's just like this show using such fab there's, and and you know, I want to say it's James Panawazic. Uh, earlier this summer or you know a few months ago at the time we were recording this had um some some something he tweeted i think because he was watching the strain which features um some classical music being just like the go-to for the baddies the uh rich old white dudes with you know a bunch of money who are self-interested and he tweeted something out about how classical music is just that's what it's associated with for people now and that shows that as an art form it's dying because it doesn't speak to young people at least in media that's not represented in that way something like that um obviously he's a brilliant critic and um i'm not trying to criticize him i think that's ridiculous but that's okay uh that's why we have these discussions so we can disagree and see the other person's point of view but I just loved the way that it used that music. That's why we had such a ridiculously long Kids Classical Corner for that episode, because it used all this great music. So part of me wants to pick that one. But then I realized that like the actual main plot of that episode is not uh is not um Hannibal preparing his feast, which was such an audacious uh way to 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 force the audience to look at the character they've been thinking is pretty damn cool because Mess Mickelson is so awesome um, through this first six episodes. But the main plot of that is theoretically it's the, the harvester, the organ harvester, which I mean, I just don't, I don't care about that like at all. Every other part of the episode is so much more interesting to me. The progression of Alana and Will and all of that works so much more that I just kind of forget that that is a thing that also happened in the episode, which tells me I shouldn't be picking that episode. So instead I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with buffet uh, foie, which is the the Georgia episode, which has less of the stuff that I typically love about Hannibal, but uh, especially after uh, podcasting about it and you know really breaking down the episode with uh, with Libby Hill who came on, um, you know I I really appreciated that episode even more. And it feels, again, it feels odd to pick that episode because it is so atypical of what Hannibal is. I mean, it's not, doesn't have all of this luscious color and, um, and really dense music and, and all of that. It's, it's very focused in on Will and Georgia's headspace and their, their, where they're at psychologically and, and all of that. But it was the one that I was so engrossed in that I wasn't taking notes, that I wasn't noticing anything. And for I'm sure for a lot of people, that's how they, the show always feels. Um, only us hyper-analytical people are actually sitting and taking notes when they watch a show like this. Only those of us who do a podcast about it and talk about it for two and a half hours for a finale um, are going to be distracting themselves by taking notes. But 
I couldn't really even do it with episode 10. And, and so that's what I'm going to go with, I guess. The finale is great. There's several episodes that are truly fantastic, truly fantastic. But the one that hit me the hardest, I think, is Buffet Foie, episode 10. I think that that's a great pick. And as somebody who grew up watching The X-Files, like that was the very first TV show that I, I watched before I knew what TV was as a medium, before I cared about, you know, sitting down at the same place, the same hour, uh, whatever day of the week it was. Like that was the show that I watched with my family. A weird one to watch, obviously, because it's kind of terrifying as a child. Um, like the Buffet Froid was Hannibal's most overt homage to that series and i think that that's as good as some of the best x-files episodes so i mm-hmm. that's that's a wonderful wonderful pick i think uh no i had to go back to like my review of the finale and look at the episodes that i picked for favorite episodes of the season and i picked potage 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 even better <laughs> um, entree uh buffet and um the finale but the one I think I'm going to go with is the penultimate episode, um, Relevez? Relevez? Relevez. 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 Yeah. That's, That's the guess. one I'm going to go with, um, actually, um, for a couple of reasons. But the most, the biggest one being is the fact that it's just a very t- talkative episode. And like uh, when the biggest thing that happens in that episode really is that Georgia gets Put on caught on fire in her oxygen tank and then the episode just settles into people talking for a very long stretch of time until we finally get to the horribleness of will having a breakdown in front of abigail at the uh, cottage but it's just an episode that feel filled me with a great deal of dread and watching Hannibal maneuver everyone into like their final places for dinner, basically, which is the finale, as I kind of like to think about it. And I think it was just all of that dread that I'm remembering from that episode when I watched it, that I think that's why I'm going to pick it, is just that this was an episode that, whereas Kate's choice really just kind of scared the shit out of me, uh, this one just kind of filled me with an immense amount of dread, and that's an emotion that I just really associate with this show. And I think that was really the first episode that I was able to put a finger on it and say, this is what this show is doing to me, and this is why. So I'm going to pick – I'll pick that. Uh, at the point of this recording, um, our our podcast of that episode hasn't gone out yet, but once that does go out, I think you'll, you'll really enjoy that because – uh, the three of us, Kate, myself, and Simon, talked about exactly what you've just mentioned, and it, it was a fantastic episode for those reasons. Just the way that it begins and then settles into, like you had said, conversations. It's a lot of very quiet, intimate conversations, uh, and somehow manages to work so wonderfully. Yeah, that's, again, it's another highlight, and both Georgia episodes were picked, so that says and it also something, right? Has- one of my favorite little gags is audiovisual gags in the entire show where you have that just the sonic acoustics of Will freaking out in the cabin and then it cuts to a vacuum cleaner on the airplane. I loved that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. I burst out laughing because I needed that release from that scene and they gave it to me in such a really funny way that 
it's probably one of the still remains one of my favorite funniest moments that doesn't involve Hannibal quipping in season two. You know what moment just popped into my head as we're talking about all these really weighty things? The moment that just popped into my head from Hannibal uh, and just almost made me laugh out loud here and mess up our recording, uh, Will bursting into Hannibal's house to be like, oh my god, guys, I just kissed Alana. (laughs) (laughs) I kissed Alana Bloom. Oh my god. The oh early or mid season one of Hannibal. You were so lighthearted. <laughs> How far we've come. <laughs> How far we have come indeed. We've come quite quite a bit in just this podcast as well. I'm not sure because we've taken a couple breaks, uh, if this is gonna be longer than our second season finale, but it's it's certainly in competition, so it's been I wonderful. Think what you guys have learned from this is not to have me on anymore. <laughs> <laughs> If that's the lesson I have not learned it, sir, thank you <laughs> for indulging our, uh, our 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 enjoyment of long podcast episodes. Well, the, one of the things that I enjoy most of having both of you on at the same time is that uh, you make sure that I just don't settle into a role of asking questions and, and getting away with bullshit or <laughs> like getting out of uh, other discussions that, that I bring up. So that's my last question or comment if there's anything that uh you would like to ask me or say while we're still doing this before season three if i have not adequately expressed my opinion uh both of you hold me to that standard so go ahead and and feel free to do that now okay well i'm gonna pose a question to the two of you uh well aside from any final thoughts on the season as a whole obviously i'm sure we'll do some of that but what do you guys take away from Hannibal? We, obviously, this is a show that we appreciate. Uh, you know, Sean and I have talked, you know, like unceasingly about this first season and as well as the second season. There's so much to break down, but what would you say are the handful? I mean, I'm not going to limit you to single because I know I'll want to say more than one handful of things that most distinguish this show. And most, you know, I'm assuming nobody's listening who hasn't already seen Hannibal, but most make it a show that deserves so much larger of an audience and wider of an audience than it already has. I can say three things, and I'll I'll go over them briefly. Um, The first of which is, and this is from day one, what I've most appreciated about it, especially within the context of uh, network crime thriller shows, is its take on violence on television, that it's not just happenstance, that they really focus, and we talked about Abigail Hobbs as the linchpin for the the season, um, that the effects of violence upon characters feels real, that it lingers in a realistic way, that it matters, because it should matter. Nobody can experience these things like Will Graham and come through either unscathed or kind of glossed over. And so the fact that they do that so thoroughly is a huge, huge reason why I appreciate this series so much. The other two, um, the artistic merit, I mean, we've talked about a bunch about that. Um, just that it's unique among television series currently. I think uh, not too long ago, uh, we talked, Kate, with... Um, with Simon, we did a, a Make You Watch-a-Thon, and, and the reason that I had picked Samurai Jack for that Make You Watch-a-Thon is because of those technical qualities and how artistic it was. I think that Hannibal is unique among live-action series currently 
um, for a lot of the same reasons. And lastly, I would point to the performances. There are a lot of TV series currently that have two very key prominent roles. You know, you look at The Americans with Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese. You look at Masters of Sex with Michael Sheen and Lizzie Kaplan. Uh, even The Bridge, I think that that uh, Demian Orshier and uh, Diane Kruger, and, and of course, recently, uh, Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson. I think that Matt Mickelson and Hugh Dancy, they have different things to do, and I don't know. If I if I take into account the overall quality, I think that they probably are the best pair on television currently. And that's no disrespect to the other people that I mentioned and also a bunch of other pairs that lead other television series currently. But those are the things that I would say. For me, building on Sean's first point and also acknowledging the other two points as being completely and totally accurate, um... Both of my takes on seasons one and two have been about the fact that I think Hannibal is very much about how we watch television in some ways and how we deal with television, specifically violent television and television today. Uh, Season one, as Sean pointed out, is very much about grappling with violence and how that the effects that that has on us as viewers. And we use Will as a way to deal with that idea. And I think that the show acknowledges that in season two with the courtroom episode, um, where the entire episode is basically, is Will violent because he goes after serial killers or is he just violent? And it becomes a stand-in for those kind of media effects type of stories that deal with, well, did television make them do this or violent media make them do this? And I think that Hannibal is very much interested in that idea without actually posing that question. And then to get back to an idea that I put forth in our season two podcast is just that idea of Hannibal as an antihero within Will's life and Will's response to Hannibal as working as our response to characters like Walter White and Tony Soprano and so forth, and how we grapple with these moral decisions about wanting them to get away with things, but still wanting them to get caught at the same time. I finally managed to articulate what I was talking about then. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think that Hannibal has, at least within the span of the first two seasons, become a show about television in a way that I don't think any other show can claim to be without being really overtly about television. And I think that's part of the reason why I respond to Hannibal in such a really interest in such an engaged way is that it's talking about what it is on. It's art commenting on art. And I think that's really exciting and goes back to the idea of Hannibal being a very unique show within the television landscape. It's one of those shows that, I mean, and again, this is the kind of thing that is usually reserved for prestige cable dramas. And and comedy tends to not get enough respect in this way. But people are happy to break down the minutiae of Mad Men or of Breaking Bad or of some of these other prestige shows. Um, But as soon as you say that it's a network show, all of a sudden um, there's a sense that it's doesn't it doesn't merit the same 
scrutiny or we don't there isn't the same uh passion behind the scenes where every single department is making sure every decision they make they're they're completely invested in them um it's one of the reasons the good wife remains still somehow one of the most underrated shows um at least amongst the generic tv watching populace out there online uh as compared to some of these other cable shows um because it also gets the it's on cbs question mark it can't be thoughtful kind of uh stigma but with Hannibal, every single element of the show is is crafted with loving care. Whether it's the music, which I love to go on about, whether it's the the set design, the costuming, uh, I mean, the, every single production element is masterfully crafted. And just watching that on screen is a pleasure. But if you only have that, then you end up with, uh, I shouldn't say, I don't mean to give this show a hard time. When I watch Boardwalk Empire, I tend not to, I don't connect anywhere near as strongly as I do with Hannibal. And that is another show that is masterfully crafted. It looks gorgeous. There's care in every element of that production. But I still don't have the same connection with the characters um, that I do with Hannibal. So it has all of these beautiful production elements it's gorgeous to look at but then i i have to go back to the same idea that both uh sean and noel you that you guys have both uh, expressed and the big thing that bowled me over about season one of hannibal is that i could not think and i'm sure there is one that i just haven't seen because there's a lot of tv but i could not think of another show definitely not another network show that looked at the effects of violence on on a regular person you know Noel, what you were saying about this um being a response to other shows or, or being about television in a certain in a way and the way that we represent violence and the way that we have these anti-heroes will is a straight up hero and i'm very glad to have a show that has a villain that we can enjoy i don't feel comfortable calling hannibal an anti-hero i'll just call him a villain as fascinating as he is and a hero in will that you know we watch him go through all of this everything that happens in season one and like alana says in this finale it all comes down to garrett jacob hobbs it all started there and so we watch the fallout the just we don't see the fallout in the typical way that you see on shows like i don't know, like the killing or like um you know any of these any of these shows that show one murder and then we see the fallout amongst a community etc that's something that has been done to varying levels of success time and again on television here we we just watch our hero and we watch him slowly devolve over the course of a season oh, and, and you know obviously he's got Hannibal helping him out and guiding him and leading him down a dark and twisted path but to see a show care about will that character and not just have him get better in four episodes the way that most shows would do and to care about abigail and make her a main character regardless of the actress's status as recurring or uh, regular and to really follow what ha what could happen to a person even the strongest person even somebody who you know encephalitis <laughs> and hannibal lecter playing in his brain can't remove this character's certainty of who he is and what he is capable of to, to watch them through a season and see the effects that being f basically forced to kill somebody has on him and on his psyche and on everyone around him, it's fascinating. And it's something that 
just nobody else is doing. So that is a big thing for me. Also, we've already talked about the, this show's use of symbolism and the way that it puts you inside the mind of somebody who is losing themselves and the way that it, it takes every tool that it can think of to do that. So visually, uh, with the sound, with every production element, as well as just with all of these different way, uh, forms of storytelling to, to, to capture that. I can't think of another show that has truly captured that, that, that psychological, um, head, the headspace that will find himself in through the, throughout the course of the season. This is a show, this is a network drama that is completely comfortable to spend several episodes towards the end of its first season with the audience actively upset and never reassuring the audience that things are going to be okay, really. Uh, when we have Will disintegrating into water, when we have losing time and a shuddering camera like we have here, there's no reassuring of the audience that it'll be okay, everything will be wrapped up at the end of the season or at the end of these 44 minutes. It's bold, inventive storytelling, and it's a commitment to character and to uh, to fully exploring the pain that can come with this type of violence without reveling in it and without um, turning it into a soapbox. I mean, just... just taking all of the the bullshit, frankly, that usually gets tied in with these types of stories and putting it to the side and just looking at a character and looking at a relationship and all everything that comes with it. It's, it's wonderful storytelling and it's so respectful and it's so uh, inventive. It's I absolutely love this show and it's been a pleasure talking about it all season. I, and I don't want to belabor the point about uh, the, the violence aspect of it, but I'm a huge, huge proponent of the first season of Forbiddelson, which is the, the series that The Killing was based off of. And, and even with that, which comes from a tradition of very, very smart Scandinavian crime fiction, you know, writers like Joe Nesbo, uh, who did the Harry Hole novels, uh, Hayne Mankell, who did Wallander, even Stieg Larsson, who did the Millennium Trilogy, nothing gets at that level of how violence affects the psyche to the same extent that Brian Fuller's Hannibal does. So it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of, of fiction, adapted fiction. And it's, it's really important. You know, the, the series that are often credited as the, the best historically in television history, um, you know, the Sopranos, the wire, breaking bad, mad men and Deadwood. Those are the five that are usually cited most frequently if you look at just the first two seasons of those series, um, I'm going to be honest, compared to Hannibal season two, it's really just Deadwood that kind of stacks up. I would say that the first two seasons of Hannibal are better than most of those first two seasons, which just makes me think, where can this show go from here? Because it really is that damn good. I don't know if both of you or either of you agree with that, but this is a must watch series if you are a television fan in any way shape or form i agree i i don't know that i agree about rating all of the those shows i would have to think about it further but uh this is certainly and and i feel this way every year they've earned my trust um and yet some part of me is nervous how could you possibly maintain this just like i'm sure i would have been nervous after season two of Deadwood or after of the wire or any of these shows, uh, how could you possibly maintain your 
level um, because the uh, the first two seasons are so strong. Um, so I'm so, I'm nervous about season three. I'm sure it'll be great, um, but but yeah, I don't I don't disagree with the sentiment. Nor do I. Um, I think this idea of about topping is really interesting, just or like continuing a pace. Just because, based on what they've said, structurally, season three sounds really bold for any type of show, regardless of whether or not it's on broadcast or cable. And I think the other thing that reminds me of is this idea of the fact that The Good Wife is basically coming off one of the best television series in recent memory. And that idea of keeping a pace with that sort of thing, and I think... Hannibal and The Good Wife are both in really odd positions of having come off stellar, amazing seasons, underrated in terms of ratings, and needing to not necessarily prove that they can keep doing it, but just to keep that pace going. And I think some of that is about our expectations about storytelling as much as it is about the stories that they need to tell to satisfactorily satisfactorily says tell their stories in a satisfying manner that they want to tell. Yeah, I agree. And, um, that will, that'll probably be it for this conversation. I mean, we're going to have plenty more to talk about in the future. I'm sure. Uh, a lot of thank yous to give out, uh, especially to the listeners. And if you're into, if you're this far into this podcast in particular, <laughs> you are dedicated. So, or or you're on a road trip and you have. I'm sorry. <laughs> Why are you apologizing, man? I'm looking at the audio here. This is not your fault. <laughs> uh, but I'll I'll thank listeners again. Thank you to all of the guests who have come on. Many of whom have uh, been returning guests. Uh, just for this season, though, from from Sound on Sight, Ricky, Justine, Depayan, Simon, and Randy. From the AV Club, Dennis, Zach, Molly, and Les, uh, Libby from NPR, uh, Miles, also from the AV Club, but um, uh, his personal blog, Cultural Learnings, from previously TV, Sarah Bunting, um, David Bax from Battleship Retention, uh, Steve from Ain't It Cool, and of course, Noel, who, I mean, I guess you're our honorary third co-host now. Right. Oh, really? Does, like, all the time I put in qualify me for that? Is this, like, the time that I was honorarily inducted into the Drama Society in college because I just kept showing up for things? <laughs> it's, yeah, I think that's fine, as long as you're okay with that uh, that qualification. No, I'm cool with it. Yeah, okay. great. I'll see you guys in May or a May, April or May when season three starts. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, well, touching on that, of course, Kate and I will be back to talk about uh, Season 3 when that does air. Um, did, should I mention some of my plans for that, or should we keep it secret, or what I, you do know you guys think? I think, I think we got to leave the audience wanting more, so let's but just say... You'll tell me as an honorary co-host after we're done, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. There, there are plans. Okay, let's put so, it that yeah, way. I'll, I'll, I'll tease it out. First of all, yes, there will be minor tweaks obviously with this season we had a new recurring segment with spoiled meat um so there will be a different recurring segment for for season three and there will be more interaction between listeners and the co-hosts and the guest hosts um so you have that to look forward to there there will be bonuses as well so please be on the lookout for that um but 
any last thoughts, comments? I know we kind of summed up our opinions about um, this this season and also the series. Well, of course, obviously, uh, I've thanked all of the the guests, but Kate Kolzik, who has been the the perfect again, the perfect co-host for this series, not just because of the background, uh, obviously, in music, but because of how fantastic you've been in terms of analyzing all of these things at length and, and the effort that you put into it. So thank you very much. Thank you for putting up with all of my nonsense, and uh, hopefully we'll be doing this for the next few years. Go team. And uh, like I said earlier, you've got the hard job. Not only do you edit, but you come up with the questions and uh, structure everything. So that is by far the more taxing. My, I doff my cap to you, sir. All right. Once again, thank you, listeners, who have been the most important part of this. We wouldn't do this unless we knew the people were listening. Well, we might have done it if we didn't. We probably. I, I yeah. would just be talking into the, the blank void. But we would like to hear from you if you exist. And, uh, <laughs> and many of you have gotten in contact with us and have expressed uh, your opinions. And so thank you for all of that, either on the posts on Sound Insight, on Twitter, uh, the, the links on Reddit or on IMDb board. We greatly appreciate that, and we hope that we continue to expand our listener base. But that is it for this season and for 2014. Kind of sad, but uh, we'll be back, of course, in 2015 uh, with more This Is Our Design. And so, Noel, where can listeners find you and your work online? Um, I'm at TV.com. Uh, when this airs, we'll probably be knee-deep knee into the fall season, which will be exciting. I'm doing Arrow, The Flash, and The Good Wife, as well as checking in on Elementary. And I'm sadly also having to watch the first episode of Stalker again. <laughs> um, God, that show's <laughs> terrible. And you can find me on Twitter at Noel, N-O-E-L-R-K. Uh, I'm on Twitter at the Televerse. You can find my weekly TV podcast at Sound on Sight. Uh, you can find my writing at Sound on Sight and at the AV Club as well. But mostly, just hit me up if you like to. If you like to email uh, Sean and myself, the Televerse at gmail dot com, and uh, just mostly, just hit me up on on Twitter. That's the place where you're most likely to. You know, I would love to hear from y'all. So just hit me up there at the Televerse. And Sean. Uh, and I am on Twitter at Sean Coletti, and we'll also have a, a new email specifically for this podcast once season three hits. But yeah, for the time being, uh, if you have any questions about this, hit us up at the, the Televerse at Gmail. Uh, and for this fall season, uh, either at Sound on Sight or at TV Overmind, I'll be reviewing Brain on the CW, uh, The Legend of Korra, and Sleepy Hollow. Uh, and if any of the listeners are fans of Banshee, we'll be doing a weekly podcast for season three starting in um, probably January, which is when historically Banshee has begun to air, but whenever that third season begins. And to be again, a little bit more clear, I still haven't watched it, but you will okay. be doing a podcast. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I will be doing a podcast uh, co-hosting with Les Chapel, who has guested on this podcast a couple times. So listeners will be aware. Um, but one final time, thank you listeners for sticking with us for this long We'll be back whenever season three begins, which will hopefully be sooner rather than later. Uh, and that's it for this year. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design. You